Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. And what role did religion play in Sojourner Truth's life? What role didn't religion play in Sojourner Truth's life? Uh, Sojourner Truth made herself, remade herself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Without religion, Sojourner Truth would be an ex-slave. And we don't think very often about what slavery meant to people psychologically. And that's another thing that I wanted to do. Um, That book... um, my um, Penguin Classic of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl and the essays in Southern History Across the Color Line use psychology as well uh, as the archives to talk about the past and to really ask people to think about what it meant not to be a free person, what it meant to be a captive, what it meant to be treated like a child, well into your adulthood. Sojourner Truth was almost 30 when she was emancipated, and she had almost no experience of people um, who were not slaves, uh, people in her family who were not slaves. She had a little experience, but not very much. So for her, it was, and I think for everybody facing a great life change, uh, a divorce, a death, emancipation, a fortune, great good luck. It's still a wrenching experience that you have to work your way through. So the power of the Holy Spirit was literally empowering for her. She was able, with the power of the Holy Spirit, to go to court to get her son back. 
context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, January 17, 2019. So I have been told this is our debut book study on Harriet Jacobs incidents in the life of a slave girl. Uh, this book, the reason we're reading it, it was referenced in the last two books that we read on the book club, uh, the late Pamela Evans Harris, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, and then again in Dr. Tommy J. Curry's The Man Not Race Class Genre and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood. That in and of itself is interesting because those two books uh, are pretty different. And I think they were referenced for different reasons. Uh, I think both Dr. Curry and Pam uh, used this book uh, to point out the terrorism of slavery, racism, white supremacy, which is ongoing, and uh, specifically to point out the sexual component of white terrorism, black males and black females being sexually sewered in this book. That is a primary component of white supremacy racism. So we certainly can be alert to that. Uh, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, also a former guest on the cows. We discussed her book, The History of White People. Oh, let me do that again correctly. Dr. Nell Irvin Painter. Uh, she did an introduction for the 2000 Penguin edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. That was Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, uh, an audio segment of her speaking on C-SPAN at the beginning of the program, uh, talking about this book and Sojourner Truth. Uh, I think it's interesting her talking about black people being treated like children, even up into quote unquote adulthood. That is the system of white supremacy. I also thought her <clears throat> pointing out the importance of religion, very important. I think that's something that we've talked about in a number of books, particularly the books that we've read that deal directly with slavery. I know we read uh, Solomon Northup's uh, 12 Years a Slave some time ago and some other books that were kind of in the same genre, the slave narratives. Uh, but we will go ahead and get started. Looking forward to it. Pay, uh, pay attention to the role of religion. And then, obviously, I think sexual terrorism will be a major theme in the book for males and females. So we can review that as we go. Harriet Jacobs, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, first published in 1861, same year as the Civil War. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Introduction to Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, January 2008. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Introduction Northerners know nothing at all about slavery. They think it is perpetual bondage only. They have no conception of the depth of degradation involved in that word, slavery. If they had, they would never cease their efforts until so horrible a system was overthrown. A Woman of North Carolina Rise up, ye women that are at ease. 
Hear my voice, ye careless daughters, give ear unto my speech. Isaiah, chapter 32, verse 9. Edited by L. Maria Child. Boston, published for the author, 1861. Preface by the author. Reader, be assured this narrative is no fiction. I am aware that some of my adventures may seem incredible, but they are nevertheless strictly true. I have not exaggerated the wrongs inflicted by slavery. On the contrary, my descriptions far fall short of the facts. I have concealed the names of places, and given persons fictitious names. I had no motive for secrecy on my own account, but I deemed it kind and considerate towards others to pursue this course. I wish I were more competent to the task I have undertaken, but I trust my readers will excuse deficiencies in consideration of circumstances. I was born and reared in slavery, and I remained in a slave state twenty-seven years. Since I have been at the North, it has been necessary for me to work diligently for my own support, and the education of my children. This has not left me much leisure to make up for the loss of early opportunities to improve myself, and it has compelled me to write these pages at irregular intervals, whenever I could snatch an hour from household duties. When I first arrived in Philadelphia, Bishop Payne advised me to publish a sketch of my life, but I told him I was altogether incompetent to such an undertaking. Though I have improved my mind somewhat since that time, I still remain of the same opinion, but I trust my motives will excuse what might otherwise seem presumptuous. I have not written my experiences in order to attract attention to myself. On the contrary, it would have been more pleasant to me to have been silent about my own history. Neither do I care to excite sympathy for my own sufferings. But I do earnestly desire to arouse the women of the North to a realizing sense of the condition of two millions of women at the South, still in bondage, suffering what I suffered, and most of them far worse. I want to add my testimony to that of abler pens, to convince the people of the free states what slavery really is. Only by experience can any one realize how deep and dark and foul is that pit of abominations. May the blessing of God rest on this imperfect effort in behalf of my persecuted people. Linda Brent Introduction by the Editor The author of the following autobiography is personally known to me, and her conversation and manners inspire me with confidence. During the last seventeen years, she has lived the greater part of the time with a distinguished family in New York, and has so deported herself as to be highly esteemed by them. This fact is sufficient, without further credentials of her character. I believe those who know her will not be disposed to doubt her veracity, though some incidents in her story are more romantic than fiction. At her request I have revised her manuscript, but such changes as I have made have been mainly for purposes of condensation and orderly arrangement. I have not added anything to the incidents, or changed the import of her very pertinent remarks. With trifling exceptions, both the ideas and the language are her own. I pruned excrescences a little, but otherwise I had no reason for changing her lively and dramatic way of telling her own story. The names of both persons and places are known to me, but for good reasons I suppress them. It will naturally excite surprise that a woman reared in slavery should be able to write so well. But circumstances will explain this. In the first place, nature endowed her with quick perceptions. Secondly, the mistress with whom she lived till she was twelve years old, was a kind, considerate friend, who taught her to read and spell. 
Thirdly, she was placed in favorable circumstances after she came to the North, having frequent intercourse with intelligent persons, who felt a friendly interest in her welfare, and were disposed to give her opportunities for self-improvement. I am well aware that many will accuse me of indecorum for presenting these pages to the public, for the experiences of this intelligent and much-injured woman belong to a class which some call delicate subjects, and others indelicate. This peculiar phase of slavery has generally been kept veiled, but the public ought to be made acquainted with its monstrous features, and I willingly take the responsibility of presenting them with the veil withdrawn. I do this for the sake of my sisters in bondage, who are suffering wrongs so foul that our ears are too delicate to listen to them. I do it with the hope of arousing conscientious and reflecting women at the North to a sense of their duty in the exertion of moral influence on the question of slavery, on all possible occasions. I do it with the hope that every man who reads this narrative will swear solemnly before God that, so far as he has power to prevent it, no fugitive from slavery shall ever be sent back to suffer in that loathsome den of corruption and cruelty. L. Maria Child Chapter One of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, January 2008 Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter One Childhood I was born a slave, but I never knew it till six years of happy childhood had passed away. My father was a carpenter, and considered so intelligent and skilful in his trade, that, when buildings out of the common line were to be erected, he was sent for from long distances, to be head workman. On condition of paying his mistress two hundred dollars a year, and supporting himself, he was allowed to work at his trade, and manage his own affairs. His strongest wish was to purchase his children, but though he several times offered his hard earnings for that purpose, he never succeeded. In complexion my parents were a light shade of brownish-yellow, and were termed mulattoes. They lived together in a comfortable home, and though we were all slaves, I was so fondly shielded that I never dreamed I was a piece of merchandise, trusted to them for safe-keeping, and liable to be demanded of them at any moment. I had one brother, William, who was two years younger than myself, a bright, affectionate child. I had also a great treasure in my maternal grandmother, who was a remarkable woman in many respects. She was the daughter of a planter in South Carolina, who, at his death, left her mother and his three children free, with money to go to St. Augustine, where they had relatives. It was during the Revolutionary War, and they were captured on their passage, carried back, and sold to different purchasers. Such was the story my grandmother used to tell me, but I do not remember all the particulars. She was a little girl when she was captured, and sold to the keeper of a large hotel. I have often heard her tell how hard she fared during childhood. But as she grew older she evinced so much intelligence, and was so faithful, that her master and mistress could not help seeing it was for their interest to take care of such a valuable piece of property. She became an indispensable personage in the household, officiating in all capacities, from cook and wet-nurse to seamstress. She was much praised for her cooking, and her nice crackers became so famous in the neighborhood that many people were desirous of obtaining them. In consequence of numerous requests of this kind, she asked permission of her mistress to bake crackers at night, after all the household work was done, and she obtained leave to do it, provided she would clothe herself and her children from the profits. Upon these terms, 
after working hard all day for her mistress, she began her midnight bakings, assisted by her two oldest children. The business proved profitable, and each year she laid by a little, which was saved for a fund to purchase her children. Her master died, and the property was divided among his heirs. The widow had her dower in the hotel which she continued to keep open. My grandmother remained in her service as a slave, but her children were divided among her master's children. As she had five, Benjamin, the youngest one, was sold, in order that each heir might have an equal portion of dollars and cents. There was so little difference in our ages that he seemed more like my brother than my uncle. He was a bright, handsome lad, nearly white, for he inherited the complexion my grandmother had derived from Anglo-Saxon ancestors. Though only ten years old, seven hundred and twenty dollars were paid for him. His sale was a terrible blow to my grandmother. But she was naturally hopeful, and she went to work with renewed energy, trusting in time to be able to purchase some of her children. She had laid up three hundred dollars, which her mistress one day begged as a loan, promising to pay her soon. The reader probably knows that no promise or writing given to a slave is legally binding, for according to southern laws a slave, being property, can hold no property. When my grandmother lent her hard earnings to her mistress, she trusted solely to her honour, the honour of a slaveholder to a slave. To this good grandmother I was indebted for many comforts. My brother Willie and I often received portions of the crackers, cakes, and preserves she made to sell, and after we ceased to be children, we were indebted to her for many more important services. Such were the unusually fortunate circumstances of my early childhood. When I was six years old, my mother died, and then, for the first time, I learned by the talk around me that I was a slave. My mother's mistress was the daughter of my grandmother's mistress. She was the foster sister of my mother. They were both nourished at my grandmother's breast. In fact, my mother had been weaned at three months old, that the babe of the mistress might obtain sufficient food. They played together as children, and when they became women, my mother was a most faithful servant to her whiter foster sister. On her deathbed, her mistress promised that her children should never suffer for anything, and during her lifetime she kept her word. They all spoke kindly of my dead mother, who had been a slave merely in name, but in nature was noble and womanly. I grieved for her and my young mind was troubled with the thought who would now take care of me and my little brother. I was told that my home was now to be with her mistress, and I found it a happy one. No toilsome or disagreeable duties were imposed on me. My mistress was so kind to me that I was always glad to do her bidding, and proud to labour for her as much as my young years would permit. I would sit by her side for hours, sewing diligently, with a heart as free from care as that of any free-born white child. When she thought I was tired— she would send me out to run and jump, and away I bounded, to gather berries or flowers to decorate her room. Those were happy days, too happy to last. The slave-child had no thought for the morrow, but there came that blight which too surely waits on every human being born to be a chattel. When I was nearly twelve years old, my kind mistress sickened and died. As I saw the cheek grow paler, and the eye more glassy, how earnestly I prayed in my heart that she might live. I loved her, for she had been almost like a mother to me. My prayers were not answered. She died, and they buried her in the little churchyard, where day after day my tears fell upon her grave. I was sent to spend a week with my grandmother. I was now old enough to begin to think of the future, and again and again I asked myself what they would do with me. 
I felt sure I should never find another mistress so kind as the one who was gone. She had promised my dying mother that her children should never suffer for anything, and when I remembered that, and recalled her many proofs of attachment to me, I could not help having some hopes that she had left me free. My friends were almost certain it would be so. They thought she would be sure to do it, on account of my mother's love and faithful service. But alas! We all know that the memory of a faithful slave does not avail much to save her children from the auction-block. After a brief period of suspense, the will of my mistress was read, and we learned that she had bequeathed me to her sister's daughter, a child of five years old. So vanished our hopes. My mistress had taught me the precepts of God's word, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. But I was her slave, and I suppose she did not recognise me as her neighbour. I would give much to blot out from my memory that one great wrong. As a child I loved my mistress, and looking back on the happy days I spent with her, I try to think with less bitterness of this act of injustice. While I was with her, she taught me to read and spell, and for this privilege, which so rarely falls to the lot of a slave, I bless her memory. She possessed but few slaves, and at her death those were all distributed among her relatives. Five of them were my grandmother's children, and had shared the same milk that nourished her mother's children. Notwithstanding my grandmother's long and faithful service to her owners, not one of her children escaped the auction-block. These God-breathing machines are no more, in the sight of their masters, than the cotton they plant, or the horses they tend. CHAPTER Two, THE NEW MASTER AND MISTRESS Dr. Flint, a physician in the neighbourhood, had married the sister of my mistress, and I was now the property of their little daughter. It was not without murmuring that I prepared for my new home, and what added to my unhappiness was the fact that my brother William was purchased by the same family. My father, by his nature, as well as by the habit of transacting business as a skilful mechanic, had more of the feelings of a free man than is common among slaves. My brother was a spirited boy, and being brought up under such influences, he daily detested the name of master and mistress. One day, when his father and his mistress both happened to call him at the same time, he hesitated between the two, being perplexed to know which had the strongest claim upon his obedience. He finally concluded to go to his mistress. When my father reproved him for it, he said, "'You both called me, and I didn't know which I ought to go to first.' "'You are my child,' replied our father. "'And when I call you, you should come immediately, if you have to pass through fire and water.' Poor Willie! He was now to learn his first lesson of obedience to a master. Grandmother tried to cheer us with hopeful words, and they found an echo in the credulous hearts of youth. When we entered our new home we encountered cold looks, cold words, and cold treatment. We were glad when the night came. On my narrow bed I moaned and wept. I felt so desolate and alone. I had been there nearly a year, when a dear little friend of mine was buried. I heard her mother sob, as the clods fell on the coffin of her only child, and I turned away from the grave, feeling thankful that I still had something left to love. I met my grandmother, who said, "'Come with me, Linda,' and from her tone I knew that something sad had happened. She led me apart from the people, and then said, "'My child, your father is dead.' "'Dead! How could I believe it?' He had died so suddenly I had not even heard that he was sick. I went home with my grandmother, 
My heart rebelled against God, who had taken from me mother, father, mistress, and friend. The good grandmother tried to comfort me. "'Who knows the ways of God?' said she. "'Perhaps they have been kindly taken from the evil days to come.' Years afterwards I often thought of this. She promised to be a mother to her grandchildren, so far as she might be permitted to do so. And strengthened by her love, I returned to my master's. I thought I should be allowed to go to my father's house the next morning, but I was ordered to go for flowers, that my mistress's house might be decorated for an evening party. I spent the day gathering flowers and weaving them into festoons, while the dead body of my father was lying within a mile of me. What cared my owners for that? He was merely a piece of property. Moreover, they thought he had spoiled his children, by teaching them to feel that they were human beings. This was blasphemous doctrine for a slave to teach, presumptuous in him, and dangerous to the masters. The next day I followed his remains to a humble grave beside that of my dear mother. There were those who knew my father's worth, and respected his memory. My home now seemed more dreary than ever. The laugh of the little slave-children sounded harsh and cruel. It was selfish to feel so about the joy of others. My brother moved about with a very grave face. I tried to comfort him by saying, "'Take courage, Willie. Brighter days will come by and by.' "'You don't know anything about it, Linda,' he replied. "'We shall have to stay here all our days. We shall never be free.' I argued that we were growing older and stronger, and that perhaps we might before long be allowed to hire our own time, and then we could earn money to buy our freedom. William declared this was much easier to say than to do. Moreover, he did not intend to buy his freedom. We held daily controversies upon this subject. Little attention was paid to the slaves' meals in Dr. Flint's house. If they could catch a bit of food while it was going, well and good. I gave myself no trouble on that score, for on my various errands I passed my grandmother's house, where there was always something to spare for me. I was frequently threatened with punishment if I stopped there, and my grandmother, to avoid detaining me, often stood at the gate with something for my breakfast or dinner. I was indebted to her for all my comforts, spiritual or temporal. It was her labor that supplied my scanty wardrobe. I have a vivid recollection of the linsey-woolsey dress given me every winter by Mrs. Flint— how I hated it! It was one of the badges of slavery. While my grandmother was thus helping to support me from her hard earnings, the three hundred dollars she had lent her mistress were never repaid. When her mistress died, her son-in-law, Dr. Flint, was appointed executor. When grandmother applied to him for payment, he said the estate was insolvent, and the law prohibited payment. It did not, however, prohibit him from retaining the silver candelabra which had been purchased with that money. I presume they will be handed down in the family, from generation to generation. My grandmother's mistress had always promised her that, at her death, she should be free, and it was said that in her will she made good the promise. But when the estate was settled, Dr. Flint told the faithful old servant that, under existing circumstances, it was necessary she should be sold. On the appointed day, the customary advertisement was posted up, proclaiming that there would be a public sale of negroes, horses, etc. Dr. Flint called to tell my grandmother that he was unwilling to wound her feelings by putting her up at auction, and that he would prefer to dispose of her at private sale. My grandmother saw through his hypocrisy. She understood very well that he was ashamed of the job. She was a very spirited woman, and if he was base enough to sell her, when her mistress intended she should be free, she was determined the public should know it. 
She had for a long time supplied many families with crackers and preserves. Consequently, Aunt Marthy, as she was called, was generally known, and everybody who knew her respected her intelligence and good character. Her long and faithful service in the family was also well known, and the intention of her mistress to leave her free. When the day of sale came, she took her place among the chattels, and at the first call she sprang upon the auction block. Many voices called out, "'Shame! Shame! Who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there! That is no place for you!' Without saying a word, she quietly awaited her fate. No one bid for her. At last a feeble voice said, Fifty dollars. It came from a maiden lady, seventy years old, the sister of my grandmother's deceased mistress. She had lived forty years under the same roof with my grandmother. She knew how faithfully she had served her owners, and how cruelly she had been defrauded of her rights, and she resolved to protect her. The auctioneer waited for a higher bid, but her wishes were respected. No one bid above her. She could neither read nor write, and when the bill of sale was made out, she signed it with a cross. But what consequence was that, when she had a big heart overflowing with human kindness? She gave the old servant her freedom. At that time my grandmother was just fifty years old. Laborious years had passed since then, and now my brother and I were slaves to the man who had defrauded her of her money, and tried to defraud her of her freedom. One of my mother's sisters, called Aunt Nancy, was also a slave in his family. She was a kind, good aunt to me, and supplied the place of both housekeeper and waiting-maid to her mistress. She was, in fact, at the beginning and end of everything. Mrs. Flint, like many southern women, was totally deficient in energy. She had not strength to superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong that she could sit in her easy-chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from every stroke of the lash. She was a member of the church, but partaking of the Lord's Supper did not seem to put her in a Christian frame of mind. If dinner was not served at the exact time on that particular Sunday, she would station herself in the kitchen, and wait till it was dished, and then spit in all the kettles and pans that had been used for cooking. She did this to prevent the cook and her children from eking out their meagre fare with the remains of the gravy and other scrapings. The slaves could get nothing to eat, except what she chose to give them. Provisions were weighed out by the pound and ounce, three times a day. I can assure you she gave them no chance to eat wheat-bread from her flour-barrel. She knew how many biscuits a quart of flour would make, and exactly what size they ought to be. Dr. Flint was an epicure. The cook never sent a dinner to his table without fear and trembling, for if there happened to be a dish not to his liking, he would either order her to be whipped, or compel her to eat every mouthful of it in his presence. The poor hungry creature might not have objected to eating it, but she did object to having her master cram it down her throat till she choked. They had a pet dog that was a nuisance in the house. The cook was ordered to make some Indian mush for him. He refused to eat, and when his head was held over it, the froth flowed from his mouth into the basin. He died a few minutes after. When Dr. Flint came in, he said the mush had not been well cooked, and that was the reason the animal would not eat it. He sent for the cook, and compelled her to eat it. He thought that the woman's stomach was stronger than the dog's, but her sufferings afterwards proved that he was mistaken. This poor woman endured many cruelties from her master and mistress. Sometimes she was locked up, away from her nursing baby, for a whole day and night. When I had been in the family a few weeks, one of the plantation slaves was brought to town, by order of his master. It was near night when he arrived, and Dr. Flint ordered him to be taken to the workhouse, and tied up to the joist, so that his feet would just escape the ground. 
In that situation he was to wait till the doctor had taken his tea. I shall never forget that night. Never before in my life had I heard hundreds of blows fall, in succession, on a human being. His piteous groans, and his, Oh, pray don't, Massa, rang in my ear for months afterwards. There were many conjectures as to the cause of this terrible punishment. Some said Master accused him of stealing corn. Others said the slave had quarrelled with his wife, in presence of the overseer, and had accused his master of being the father of her child. They were both black, and the child was very fair. I went into the workhouse next morning, and saw the cowhide still wet with blood, and the boards all covered with gore. The poor man lived, and continued to quarrel with his wife. A few months afterwards Dr. Flint handed them both over to a slave-trader. The guilty man put their value into his pocket, and had the satisfaction of knowing that they were out of sight and hearing. When the mother was delivered into the trader's hands, she said, "'You promised to treat me well,' to which he replied, "'You've let your tongue run too far, damn you!' She had forgotten that it was a crime for a slave to tell who was the father of her child. From others than the master, persecution also comes in such cases. I once saw a young slave-girl dying soon after the birth of a child, nearly white. In her agony she cried out, "'O oh Lord, come and take me!' Her mistress stood by and mocked at her like an incarnate fiend. "'You suffer, do you?' she exclaimed. "'I am glad of it. You deserve it all, and more, too.' The girl's mother said, "'The baby is dead, thank God, and I hope my poor child will soon be in heaven, too.' "'Heaven!' retorted the mistress. There is no such place for the like of her and her bastard. The poor mother turned away, sobbing. Her dying daughter called her, feebly, and as she bent over her, I heard her say, Don't grieve so, mother. God knows all about it, and He will have mercy upon me. Her sufferings afterwards became so intense that her mistress felt unable to stay, but when she left the room, the scornful smile was still on her lips. Seven children called her mother. The poor black woman had but this one child, whose eyes she saw closing in death, while she thanked God for taking her away from the greater bitterness of life. CHAPTER Three, THE SLAVE'S NEW YEAR'S DAY Dr. Flint owned a fine residence in town, several farms, and about fifty slaves, besides hiring a number by the year. Hiring day at the South takes place on the first of January. On the second, the slaves are expected to go to their new masters. On a farm, they work until the corn and cotton are laid. They then have two holidays. Some masters give them a good dinner under the trees. This over, they work until Christmas Eve. If no heavy charges are meantime brought against them, they are given four or five holidays, whichever the master or overseer may think proper. Then comes New Year's Eve, and they gather together their little alls, or more properly speaking, their little nothings and wait anxiously for the dawning of day. At the appointed hour the grounds are thronged with men, women, and children, waiting like criminals, to hear their doom pronounced. The slave is sure to know who is the most humane, or cruel master, within forty miles of him. It is easy to find out on that day who clothes and feeds his slaves well, for he is surrounded by a crowd, begging, "'Please, Massa, hire me this year. I'll work very hard, Massa.' If a slave is unwilling to go with his new master, he is whipped, or locked up in jail, until he consents to go, and promises not to run away during the year. 
Should he chance to change his mind, thinking it justifiable to violate an extorted promise, woe unto him if he is caught. The whip is used till the blood flows at his feet, and his stiffened limbs are put in chains, to be dragged in the field for days and days. If he lives until the next year, perhaps the same man will hire him again, without even giving him an opportunity of going to the hiring ground. After those for hire are disposed of, those for sale are called up. O oh, you happy free women! Contrast your New Year's Day with that of the poor bondwoman. With you it is a pleasant season, and the light of the day is blessed. Friendly wishes meet you everywhere, and gifts are showered upon you. Even hearts that have been estranged from you soften at this season, and lips that have been silent echo back. I wish you a happy New Year. Children bring their little offerings, and raise their rosy lips for a caress. They are your own, and no hand but that of death can take them from you. But to the slave-mother, New Year's Day comes laden with peculiar sorrows. She sits on her cold cabin floor, watching the children who may all be torn from her the next morning, and often does she wish that she and they might die before the day dawns. She may be an ignorant creature, degraded by the system that has brutalized her from childhood, but she has a mother's instincts, and is capable of feeling a mother's agonies. On one of those sale-days, I saw a mother lead seven children to the auction-block. She knew that some of them would be taken from her, but they took all. The children were sold to a slave-trader, and their mother was bought by a man in her own town. Before night her children were all far away. She begged the trader to tell her where he intended to take them. This he refused to do. How could he, when he knew he would sell them, one by one, wherever he could command the highest price? I met that mother in the street, and her wild, haggard face lives to-day in my mind. She wrung her hands in anguish, and exclaimed, "'Gone! All gone! Why don't God kill me?' I had no words wherewith to comfort her. Instances of this kind are of daily, yea, of hourly occurrence. Slaveholders have a method, peculiar to their institution, of getting rid of old slaves, whose lives have been worn out in their service. I knew an old woman, who for seventy years faithfully served her master. She had become almost helpless, from hard labor and disease. Her owners moved to Alabama, and the old black woman is left to be sold to anybody who would give twenty dollars for her. CHAPTER Four, THE SLAVE WHO DARED TO FEEL LIKE A MAN Two years had passed since I entered Dr. Flint's family, and those years had brought much of the knowledge that comes from experience, though they had afforded little opportunity for any other kinds of knowledge. My grandmother had, as much as possible, been a mother to her orphan grandchildren. By perseverance and unwearied industry, she was now mistress of a snug little home, surrounded with the necessaries of life. She would have been happy could her children have shared them with her. There remained but three children and two grandchildren, all slaves. Most earnestly did she strive to make us feel that it was the will of God, that He had seen fit to place us under such circumstances, and though it seemed hard, we ought to pray for contentment. It was a beautiful faith, coming from a mother who could not call her children her own. But I and Benjamin, her youngest boy, condemned it. We reasoned that it was much more the will of God that we should be situated as she was. We longed for a home like hers. There we always found sweet balsam for our troubles. She was so loving, so sympathizing, 
She always met us with a smile, and listened with patience to all our sorrows. She spoke so hopefully, that unconsciously the clouds gave place to sunshine. There was a grand big oven there, too, that baked bread and nice things for the town, and we knew there was always a choice bit in store for us. But alas! Even the charms of the old oven failed to reconcile us to our hard lot. Benjamin was now a tall, handsome lad, strongly and gracefully made, and with a spirit too bold and daring for a slave. My brother William, now twelve years old, had the same aversion to the word master that he had when he was an urchin of seven years. I was his confidant. He came to me with all his troubles. I remember one instance in particular. It was on a lovely spring morning, and when I marked the sunlight dancing here and there, its beauty seemed to mock my sadness. For my master, whose restless, craving, vicious nature roved about day and night, seeking whom to devour, had just left me, with stinging, scorching words, words that scathed ear and brain like fire. Oh, how I despised him! I thought how glad I should be if some day when he walked the earth it would open and swallow him up, and disencumber the world of a plague. When he told me that I was made for his use, made to obey his command in everything, that I was nothing but a slave, whose will must and should surrender to his, never before had my puny arm felt half so strong. So deeply was I absorbed in painful reflections afterwards, that I neither saw nor heard the entrance of any one, till the voice of William sounded close beside me. "'Linda,' said he, "'what makes you look so sad? I love you.' Oh, Linda, isn't this a bad world? Everybody seems so cross and unhappy. I wish I had died when poor father did." I told him that everybody was not cross or unhappy, that those who had pleasant homes and kind friends, and who were not afraid to love them, were happy. But we, who were slave-children, without father or mother, could not expect to be happy. We must be good. Perhaps that would bring us contentment. Yes, he said. I try to be good, but what's the use? They are all the time troubling me." Then he proceeded to relate his afternoon's difficulty with young Master Nicholas. It seemed that the brother of Master Nicholas had pleased himself with making up stories about William. Master Nicholas said he should be flogged, and he would do it. Whereupon he went to work, but William fought bravely, and the young master, finding he was getting the better of him, undertook to tie his hands behind him. He failed in that, likewise. By dint of kicking and fisting, William came out of the skirmish none the worse for a few scratches. He continued to discourse, on his young master's meanness, how he whipped the little boys, but was a perfect coward when a tussle ensued between him and white boys of his own size. On such occasions he always took to his legs. William had other charges to make against him. One was his rubbing up pennies with quicksilver, and passing them off for quarters of a dollar, on an old man who kept a fruit-stall. William was often sent to buy fruit, and he earnestly inquired of me what he ought to do under such circumstances. I told him it was certainly wrong to deceive the old man, and that it was his duty to tell him of the impositions practised by his young master. I assured him the old man would not be slow to comprehend the whole, and there the matter would end. William thought it might with the old man, but not with him. He said he did not mind the smart of the whip, but he did not like the idea of being whipped. While well, I advised him to be good and forgiving. I was not unconscious of the beam in my own eye. It was the very knowledge of my own shortcomings that urged me to retain, if possible, some sparks of my brother's God-given nature. I had not lived fourteen years in slavery for nothing. 
I had felt, seen, and heard enough, to read the characters, and question the motives of those around me. The war of my life had begun, and though one of God's most powerless creatures, I resolved never to be conquered. Alas, for me! If there was one pure sunny spot for me, I believed it to be in Benjamin's heart, and in another's, whom I loved with all the ardour of a girl's first love. My owner knew of it, and sought in every way to render me miserable. He did not resort to corporal punishment, but to all the petty, tyrannical ways that human ingenuity could devise. I remember the first time I was punished. It was in the month of February. My grandmother had taken my old shoes and replaced them with a new pair. I needed them, for several inches of snow had fallen, and it still continued to fall. When I walked through Mrs. Flint's room, their creaking grated harshly on her refined nerves. She called me to her, and asked what I had about me that made such a horrid noise. I told her it was my new shoes. "'Take them off,' said she, "'and if you put them on again, I'll throw them into the fire.' I took them off, and my stockings also. She then sent me a long distance, on an errand. As I went through the snow, my bare feet tingled. That night I was very hoarse, and went to bed thinking the next day would find me sick, perhaps dead. What was my grief on waking to find myself quite well? I had imagined if I died, or was laid up for some time, that my mistress would feel a twinge of remorse that she had so hated the little imp, as she styled me. It was my ignorance of that mistress that gave rise to such extravagant imaginings. Dr. Flint occasionally had high prices offered for me, but he always said, "'She don't belong to me. She is my daughter's property, and I have no right to sell her.' Good, honest man! My young mistress was still a child, and I could look for no protection from her. I loved her, and she returned my affection. I once heard her father allude to her attachment to me, and his wife promptly replied that it proceeded from fear. This put unpleasant doubts into my mind. Did the child feign what she did not feel, or was her mother jealous of the might of love she bestowed on me? I concluded that it must be the latter. I said to myself, Surely little children are true. One afternoon I sat at my sewing, feeling unusual depression of spirits. My mistress had been accusing me of an offence, of which I assured her I was perfectly innocent, but I saw by the contemptuous curl of her lip that she believed I was telling a lie. I wondered for what wise purpose God was leading me through such thorny paths, and whether still darker days were in store for me. As I sat musing thus, the door opened softly, and William came in. "'Well, brother,' said I, what is the matter this time? Oh, Linda! Ben and his master have had a dreadful time, said he. My first thought was that Benjamin was killed. Don't be frightened, Linda, said William. I will tell you all about it. It appeared that Benjamin's master had sent for him, and he did not immediately obey the summons. When he did, his master was angry and began to whip him. He resisted. Master and slave fought, and finally the master was thrown. Benjamin had cause to tremble, for he had thrown to the ground his master, one of the richest men in town. I anxiously awaited the result. That night I stole to my grandmother's house, and Benjamin also stole thither from his master's. My grandmother had gone to spend a day or two with an old friend living in the country. "'I have come,' said Benjamin, "'to tell you good-bye. I am going away.' I inquired where. "'To the north,' he replied. I looked at him to see whether he was in earnest. I saw it all in his firm, set mouth. I implored him not to go, but he paid no heed to my words. 
He said he was no longer a boy, and every day made his yoke more galling. He had raised his hand against his master, and was to be publicly whipped for the offence. I reminded him of the poverty and hardships he must encounter among strangers. I told him he might be caught and brought back, and that was terrible to think of. He grew vexed, and asked if poverty and hardships with freedom were not preferable to our treatment in slavery. "'Linda,' he continued, "'we are dogs here. Footballs, cattle, everything that's mean. No, I will not stay. Let them bring me back. We don't die but once.' He was right, but it was hard to give him up. "'Go,' said I, "'and break your mother's heart.' I repented of my words ere they were out. "'Linda,' said he, speaking as I had not heard him speak that evening, "'how could you say that? Poor mother! Be kind to her, Linda, and you too, cousin Fanny.' Cousin Fanny was a friend who had lived some years with us. Farewells were exchanged, and the bright, kind boy, endeared to us by so many acts of love, vanished from our sight. It is not necessary to state how he made his escape. Suffice it to say, he was on his way to New York when a violent storm overtook the vessel. The captain said he must put into the nearest port. This alarmed Benjamin, who was aware that he would be advertised in every port near his own town. His embarrassment was noticed by the captain. To port they went. There the advertisement met the captain's eye. Benjamin so exactly answered its description, that the captain laid hold on him, and bound him in chains. The storm passed, and they proceeded to New York. Before reaching that port, Benjamin managed to get off his chains and throw them overboard. He escaped from the vessel, but he was pursued, captured, and carried back to his master. When my grandmother returned home and found her youngest child had fled, great was her sorrow. But with characteristic piety, she said, God's will be done. Each morning she inquired if any news had been heard from her boy. Yes, news was heard. The master was rejoicing over a letter announcing the capture of his human chattel. That day seems but as yesterday, so well do I remember it. I saw him led through the streets in chains, to jail. His face was ghastly pale, yet full of determination. He had begged one of the sailors to go to his mother's house and ask her not to meet him. He said the sight of her distress would take from him all self-control. She yearned to see him, and she went, but she screened herself in the crowd that it might be as her child had said. We were not allowed to visit him, but we had known the jailer for years, and he was a kind-hearted man. At midnight he opened the jail door for my grandmother and myself to enter, in disguise. When we entered the cell not a sound broke the stillness. "'Benjamin! Benjamin!' whispered my grandmother. No answer. "'Benjamin!' she again faltered. There was a jingle of chains. The moon had just risen and cast an uncertain light through the bars of the window. We knelt down and took Benjamin's cold hands in ours. We did not speak. Sobs were heard, and Benjamin's lips were unsealed, for his mother was weeping on his neck. How vividly does memory bring back that sad night! Mother and son talked together. He asked her pardon for the suffering he had caused her. She said she had nothing to forgive. She could not blame his desire for freedom. He told her that when he was captured, he broke away, and was about casting himself into the river, when thoughts of her came over him, and he desisted. She asked if he did not also think of God. I fancied I saw his face grow fierce in the moonlight. He answered, No, I did not think of him. 
When a man is hunted like a wild beast, he forgets there is a God, a heaven. He forgets everything in his struggle to get beyond the reach of the bloodhounds. "'Don't talk so, Benjamin,' said she. "'Put your trust in God. Be humble, my child, and your master will forgive you.' "'Forgive me for what, mother? For not letting him treat me like a dog? No, I will never humble myself to him. I have worked for him for nothing all my life, and I am repaid with stripes and imprisonment. Here I will stay till I die, or till he sells me.' The poor mother shuddered at his words. I think he felt it for when he next spoke his voice was calmer. "'Don't fret about me, mother. I ain't worth it,' said he. "'I wish I had some of your goodness. You bear everything patiently, just as though you thought it was all right. I wish I could.' She told him she had not always been so. Once she was like him. But when sore troubles came upon her, and she had no arm to lean upon, she learned to call on God, and he lightened her burdens. She besought him to do likewise. We overstayed our time, and were obliged to hurry from the jail. Benjamin had been in prison three weeks, when my grandmother went to intercede for him with his master. He was immovable. He said Benjamin should serve as an example to the rest of his slaves. He should be kept in jail till he was subdued, or be sold if he got but one dollar for him. However, he afterwards relented in some degree. The chains were taken off, and we were allowed to visit him. As his food was of the coarsest kind, we carried him as often as possible a warm supper, accompanied with some little luxury for the jailer. Three months elapsed, and there was no prospect of release or of a purchaser. One day he was heard to sing and laugh. This piece of indecorum was told to his master, and the overseer was ordered to re-chain him. He was now confined in an apartment with other prisoners, who were covered with filthy rags. Benjamin was chained near them, and was soon covered with vermin. He worked at his chains till he succeeded in getting out of them. He passed them through the bars of the window, with a request that they should be taken to his master, and he should be informed that he was covered with vermin. This audacity was punished with heavier chains, and prohibition of our visits. My grandmother continued to send him fresh changes of clothes. The old ones were burned up. The last night we saw him in jail, his mother still begged him to send for his master, and beg his pardon. Neither persuasion nor argument could turn him from his purpose. He calmly answered, I am waiting his time. Those chains were mournful to hear. Another three months passed, and Benjamin left his prison walls. We that loved him waited to bid him a long and last farewell. A slave-trader had bought him. You remember I told you what price he brought when ten years of age. Now he was more than twenty years old, and sold for three hundred dollars. The master had been blind to his own interest. Long confinement had made his face too pale, his form too thin. Moreover, the trader had heard something of his character, and it did not strike him as suitable for a slave. He said he would give any price if the handsome lad was a girl. We thanked God that he was not. Could you have seen that mother clinging to her child, when they fastened the irons upon his wrists? Could you have heard her heart-rending groans, and seen her bloodshot eyes wander wildly from face to face, vainly pleading for mercy? Could you have witnessed that scene as I saw it? You would exclaim, Slavery is damnable! Benjamin, her youngest, her pet, was for ever gone. She could not realize it. She had had an interview with the trader for the purpose of ascertaining if Benjamin could be purchased. She was told that it was impossible, as he had given bonds not to sell him till he was out of the state. He promised that he would not sell him till he reached New Orleans. 
With a strong arm and unvaried trust, my grandmother began her work of love. Benjamin must be free. If she succeeded, she knew they would still be separated, but the sacrifice was not too great. Day and night she labored. The trader's price would treble that he gave, but she was not discouraged. She employed a lawyer to write to a gentleman whom she knew in New Orleans. She begged him to interest himself for Benjamin, and he willingly favored her request. When he saw Benjamin, and stated his business, he thanked him, but said he preferred to wait a while before making the trader an offer. He knew he had tried to obtain a high price for him, and had invariably failed. This encouraged him to make another effort for freedom. So one morning, long before day, Benjamin was missing. He was riding over the blue billows, bound for Baltimore. For once his white face did him a kindly service. They had no suspicion that it belonged to a slave. Otherwise the law would have been followed out to the letter, and the thing rendered back to slavery. The brightest skies are often overshadowed by the darkest clouds. Benjamin was taken sick, and compelled to remain in Baltimore three weeks. His strength was slow in returning, and his desire to continue his journey seemed to retard his recovery. How could he get strength without air and exercise? He resolved to venture on a short walk. A by-street was selected, where he thought himself secure of not being met by any one that knew him. But a voice called out, "'Hello, Ben, my boy! What are you doing here?' His first impulse was to run, but his legs trembled so that he could not stir. He turned to confront his antagonist, and, behold, there stood his old master's next-door neighbour. He thought it was all over with him now, but it proved otherwise. That man was a miracle. He possessed a goodly number of slaves and yet was not quite deaf to that mystic clock whose ticking is rarely heard in the slaveholder's breast. "'Ben, you are sick,' said he. "'Why, you look like a ghost. I guess I gave you something of a start. Never mind, Ben, I am not going to touch you. You had a pretty tough time of it, and you may go on your way rejoicing for all me. But I would advise you to get out of this place plaguy quick, for there are several gentlemen here from our town.' He described the nearest and safest route to New York, and added, I shall be glad to tell your mother I have seen you. Good-bye, Ben." Benjamin turned away, filled with gratitude, and surprised that the town he hated contained such a gem—a gem worthy of a purer setting. This gentleman was a northerner by birth, and had married a southern lady. On his return he told my grandmother that he had seen her son, and of the service he had rendered him. Benjamin reached New York safely, and concluded to stop there till he had gained strength enough to proceed further. It happened that my grandmother's only remaining son had sailed for the same city on business for his mistress. Through God's providence, the brothers met. You may be sure it was a happy meeting. "'Oh, Phil!' exclaimed Benjamin. "'I am here at last!' Then he told him how near he came to dying, almost in sight of free land, and how he prayed that he might live to get one breath of free air. He said life was worth something now, and it would be hard to die. In the old jail he had not valued it. Once he was tempted to destroy it. But something, he did not know what, had prevented him. Perhaps it was fear. He had heard those who professed to be religious declare there was no heaven for self-murderers, and as his life had been pretty hot here, he did not desire a continuation of the same in another world. "'If I die now,' he exclaimed, "'thank God I shall die a free man!' He begged my Uncle Philip not to return south, but stay and work with him, till they earned enough to buy those at home. His brother told him it would kill their mother if he deserted her in her trouble. She had pledged her house, and with difficulty had raised money to buy him. Would he be bought? No, never, he replied. Do you suppose, Phil, when I have got so far out of their clutches, I will give them one red cent? 
No. And do you suppose I would turn mother out of her home in her old age? That I would let her pay all those hard-earned dollars for me, and never to see me? For you know she will stay south as long as her other children are slaves. What a good mother! Tell her to buy you, Phil. You have been a comfort to her, and I have been a trouble. And Linda, poor Linda, what'll become of her? Phil, you don't know what a life they lead her. She has told me something about it, and I wish old Flint was dead, or a better man. When I was in jail, he asked her if she didn't want him to ask my master to forgive me, and take me home again. She told him no, that I didn't want to go back. He got mad, and said we were all alike. I never despised my own master half as much as I do that man. There is many a worse slaveholder than my master, but for all that I would not be his slave. While Benjamin was sick, he had parted with nearly all his clothes to pay necessary expenses. But he did not part with a little pin I fastened in his bosom when we parted. It was the most valuable thing I owned, and I thought none more worthy to wear it. He had it still. His brother furnished him with clothes, and gave him what money he had. They parted with moistened eyes, and as Benjamin turned away, he said, "'Phil, I part with all my kindred.' And so it proved. We never heard from him again. Uncle Philip came home, and the first words he uttered when he entered the house were, "'Mother! Ben is free! I have seen him in New York!' She stood looking at him with a bewildered air. "'Mother, don't you believe it?' he said, laying his hand softly upon her shoulder. She raised her hands, and exclaimed, "'God be praised! Let us thank him!' She dropped on her knees, and poured forth her heart in prayer. Then Philip must sit down and repeat to her every word Benjamin had said. He told her all, only he forbore to mention how sick and pale her darling looked. Why should he distress her when she could do him no good?' The brave old woman still toiled on, hoping to rescue some of her other children. After a while she succeeded in buying Philip. She paid eight hundred dollars, and came home with the precious document that secured his freedom. The happy mother and son sat together by the old hearthstone that night, telling how proud they were of each other, and how they would prove to the world that they could take care of themselves, as they had long taken care of others. We all concluded by saying, He that is willing to be a slave, let him be a slave. End of chapter 4 Context of White Supremacy He that is willing to be a slave, let him be a slave. I am not a fan of that logic. We'll see what listeners think. Context of White Supremacy So that was the first section, uh, or yeah, first audio segment, uh, Harriet Jacobs. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. We will pick up uh, Chapter 5, uh, The Trials of Girlhood, Chapter 5. Uh, we'll pick up at, uh, if you have comments, questions, thoughts, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, two quick things. I will share. This book is widely available. 
easily you should be able to get uh, e-copy, hard copy, widely available if you want to follow along. It's not as difficult, as challenging to read as the man not. So I don't think you'll need a dictionary, although some of the wording is a little, you know, arcane. I mean, 1861 was not yesterday. Two quick things. Uh, if you have the Penguin 2000 edition, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter wrote an introduction to the text where she gives additional information. And Harriet Jacobs attempted to get Harriet Beecher Stowe, who is a white woman suspected racist who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, and is widely thought of as being this great abolitionist, wonderful white woman who worked against racism. Widely cited, she'll be an example of a good white person or a quote-unquote white ally. So Harriet Jacobs uh, goes to her for help in, you know, getting out her views, what she experienced in slavery, white terrorism. So Nell Irvin Painter, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter writes, lacking formal education, Jacobs initially doubted her ability as a writer to strike the right balance between candor and purient detail, prurient detail, excuse me. Uh, she thought first to dictate her experiences to someone more comfortable with writing for publication as the Turner Truth had to Olive Gilbert in the 1840s. I think that's the case with Solomon Northup as well. The best-selling author of Uncle Tom's Cabin struck Jacobs as a potential uh, amanuensis. That's the person who does the uh, writing you dictate to them. But Harriet Beecher Stowe saw in Jacobs only grist for her own mill. She asked to print the whole of Jacob's experience in her key to Uncle Tom's cabin, but Jacob's allowed her only a brief sketch. Uh, Stowe not only sought to appropriate Jacob's material, she also sent Jacob's letter containing details about her sexual history to Jacob's employer without Jacob's permission. Jacobs, perhaps naively, had also proposed to Stowe that Louisa accompany Stowe on a trip to England. Stowe's patronizing refusal offended Jacobs. Deeply chagrined, Jacobs decided to become an author in her own right. The death of her grandmother in 1853 removed the last obstacle to her writing her own story by herself. I thought that was really important. Uh, I've said for a long time, what does it mean to be white? No exceptions. What does it mean to be white? Even the John Browns that they reference, even though it's a small number, even the John Browns or Harriet Beecher Stowe's, anyone else that they would like to point to. Are these folks not racist? Very important. And there's a long history of this. I think we talked about some of this with Zora Neale Hurston as well. Whites and white women specifically uh, exploiting black artists, authors, victims of racism in general and sharing her sexual history without her knowledge. Tacky. Second thing I'll share before I get to the listeners, uh, the word kind. This is a text uh, written detailing enslavement, slavery of black people in this part of the world, U.S., so they say. The word kind, and not like a kind meaning a brand or a particular type, but kind is in uh, friendly, courteous, helpful, loving, humane, 
using kind in that way was used frequently in the first audio segment. It was used so much, in fact, that I did a search because I have the e-copy of the book. How many times does the word kind or a derivative, kindly master, how many times is that used in this book? The word kind or derivative is in this text 130 times. I think that's a lot. Now, again, now not every time is it kind as in being humane. Sometimes it's kind as in a brand or a type, but a lot. It looks like, it, you know, just from my glance, it looks like about 75% of these, it's some sort of derivative of courteous, humane, nice. That usage of the word kind or kindly often to describe someone classified as white and frequently someone who is classified as white who owns Negras. Something about that is, <laughs> it's, it's staggering, it's significant, and it could, be, it could be evidence of, at minimum, massive confusion, um, or a lot of things, but having whites in general regularly referred to as kind or kindly, whatever it is, and then whites who own Negras referred to as kindly. That will definitely be one to be mindful of as we proceed. Uh, if you dialed in, if you have thoughts, comments, questions, uh, hand line should be open, star six one, if you have comments to share. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with the hand up, line should be open. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. I, I thought it was just me <laughs> with with the uh not just with the word kind but it uh it's this perception of of uh integrity that I that I was hearing too much it, I, well I don't even want to I don't even want to say the word too much uh just just totally uh the whole idea that it seemed to believe it was some sort of integrity going on uh between white people and non-white people and and uh I'm, I'm just listening to this and uh uh honesty of some type uh and then with this uh adopting of the same way that your vicious enemy uh, uh, worships or religion, uh, I'm, I'm hearing that as as though that that particular understanding works for non-white people. Uh, also, uh, there was some dis. Uh, making some distinction between directions north and south as though if you went somewhere and crossed some sort of imaginary line that the problems that you are having would go away uh, you know with this idea of getting north uh, and that would also imply that the people who identify themselves as white 
are somewhat different exclusively from the white people from where the uh, person that was, uh, that the Senate person, uh, there's some some sort of difference between those white people. Uh, I would say also that uh, uh, the uh, voice that's doing the recording sounds like a uh, white female. Is it? Is it a white female? I have not seen a photograph, so I cannot confirm. But uh, I could be wrong. But it, 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 the 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 I put it this way: it'd have been a little bit better if uh, if, if the the voice sounded a little bit more different. Uh, I would imagine. Uh, a person that is a quote-unquote slave, especially during that time, uh, probably didn't sound in the way that the uh, person is uh, sounding in the uh, in the voice uh, the voice uh, that that is being played. Uh, but you know, who am I to criticize? I I, I just just a thought that I'm not afraid to uh, express. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I had some other thoughts, but I, I didn't write anything down. But I'll let somebody else uh, go further. It, it is it, it, you're right. It is uh, easier than the last book to uh, understand. I, I I don't have a book, so I can, but I can still uh, basically uh, uh, diagnose everything that's being said. And those are some of my thoughts that came right out within the first five five, ten minutes of reading, and uh, somebody else can go ahead beyond me. Thank you. I just had a, a quick question. Uh, for Harriet Jacobs, uh, she, in, in the text herself, said that, hey, she learned to read and write. She had a kindly master who allowed her to learn to read and write, and she, like many other enslaved Negras, has a white parent. Do you still think that she would sound you know, well, everybody would sound different from the 1800s to now, so but do you still think she would sound you know, substantially different than what we think as a white author someone with a white parent and who did know how to read and write? I, w I would say I would say that during that time as well as these, probably even now that I would be able to distinctly understood understand that that person is a non-white black female uh in the diction uh whether the person has been trained to read or not uh i would be able to tell but it sounds it sounds like a a white female that uh that uh that, that went to college it <laughs> went to college somewhere you know that's reading the reading the uh the the reading as far as that i mean even for back during that time we're talking about 158 years ago i believe if, uh, if i'm correct that uh, i think you said this is from 1861 uh but uh i would be able i, I should be able to tell i, I mean it, it it couldn't couldn't it couldn't be that thorough as far as education wise in that part of the world at that particular point in time. 
I mean, yes, to be able to read, yes. Uh, Frederick Douglass, from my understanding, uh, uh, was able to read. Uh, but uh, I would imagine his voice, I would be able to tell, was a, was a black male. Just by the diction, the way the, way the person formed their words, the sound. Uh, one last example, I mean, the, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the reason why I mentioned that is because his uh, quote-unquote celebration would be uh, this weekend, I think, something like that. Uh, as articulated as, as he was with words, you could still tell that was a black male. He didn't have a white parent. If not a black Pardon? Didn't have a white parent. Oh, oh, oh you, oh, you, you mentioned about with, with, with the, one of the parents being a white person. I would still, I would still say be, being okay during that time. Also, who would that person uh, have a lot of contact with? You know, well, in the situation with this professional version of of mistreating people based on color, that that is called slavery. Uh, 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 I would imagine that that distinction would be there. The distinction would be there. You know, in other words, the the person wouldn't sound like a a white person. I'll put it that way, especially during that time. Probably get beaten just for that. (laughs) Seems likely. Yeah. Seems likely not supposed to know how to read. Certainly should not be, you know, talking, right. you, you, you. talking too proper. <laughs> You're right. We'll see what other folks think uh, about the narrator. I don't. I was. I was thinking about that uh, about the narrators and folks. Cause there are many different narrated versions of the text. So, I mean, hey, we could pick a different narrated version each week. Uh, if if one, one more, one more thing, one more thought. Just the 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 uh, black male. The most realistic part of the first reading was the black male who was in prison and the things that he had to say, including about religion when it was brought to him. That was a, that to me sounded like the more re- realistic historical analysis of that time. White people spitting in the food selling off all the children to cover the debt. That sounded pretty realistic, too, but absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I, I just meant as far as the, the narrative part, as far as someone talking and exchanging mm-hmm. between people, I, I, I think his episode was, was, was I would say, uh, based on my studies, is, would, would be more, uh, more of a... Uh, a, a, a realistic reaction, I put it that way, to to the to the uh, the hellish times that 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 uh, people were going through. I'm not saying it lightened up any, <laughs> you know. But uh, right yeah. on. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, let's see, other folks uh, who dialed in. If you have a hand up, commentary you would like to share. Line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Uh, yes, ma'am. Greetings, Red. 
Hello, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, I just joined the book study, but when I was pulling up the book, um, just as Gus was saying, how widely it's available, because I have um, Amazon Prime, and you can download the book for free. But when I was downloading it and I was pulling it up, um, it said, like, it gave, like, a brief description, which I thought was interesting. It basically, I only read a little bit of it, but it said, um, even though um, Linda was born into slavery, um, she still had somewhat of a happy childhood. It didn't say somewhat, but it referenced happy and childhood. And it, so I thought maybe that might um, also be a reason why it's so widely available, because it does not condemn um, racist white supremacists for owning actual people. Um, I do agree with uh, the retired firefighter that the narrator, no issues with, you know, the narration, of course, but the narrator, they do sound um, maybe non-white, I'm sorry, non-black, at least, um, maybe a white woman, because I was thinking about um, some of the other black females who are widely known who have white a white parent. Um, I feel like it's the the one uh, I forgot her name, but she used to have a used to have a show. I think it was like on CNN or Melissa MSNBC. Right. She doesn't sound like her, so um, and I still feel like even with uh, non-white people with a white parent and a black parent, um, I still can kind of hear like different the different um, like you said diction or even like accent or whatever. Um, but I, I'll leave my commentary there until the next segment uh, gets over. Thank you. For sure. I remember this came up before uh, when we read Asada Shakur's autobiography, 2013. Uh, we read, or yeah, we read in the book club. Uh, Mel did the narration, and many people thought that she was a white person, or at least sounded like a white person, and then she came on to confirm that she is not a white person and she's done subsequent narrations for us since then. But that, and she doesn't even have a white parent. And there were a number of folks who got uh, <laughs> right uh, indignant in their accusations if memory is uh, correct. Anywho, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, any thoughts on our first segment of uh, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl? Can I be heard? Greetings, Princess. Uh, good evening. I was just uh, going to let you know I just got in from uh, work, and so I'll listen to the second half before I have any commentary. Grand, grand. Uh, other folks, if you all have commentary, star six one, uh, and we will nab your hand as we proceed. In fact, I'll give. Uh, some of the notes that I have from the first section, and then I'll double check and see if uh, people have their own notes to share. Uh, also from the book club, The Hate You Give, uh, formerly worst book I've ever read, certainly uh, formerly the worst book we've ever read here on the Cows Book Club. Uh, there is a white woman, Anne Michelson. She is in Norway. They use this book in their literature classes, this white woman specifically, and she has like written 
blog posts about it and, oh, this is the best book in the world. It's working against racism and blah, blah, blah. Uh, one of our listeners recommended like, hey, you know, let's try to get some of the white people on the program who think that this is a wonderful book slash movie now that it's been released. She should be here Monday. Major time difference, of course, because she is in uh, Norway. I think there's a nine hour time difference. So it'll be Monday early in the day, like I think 2 p.m. afternoon, Monday. Uh, excuse me, Tuesday, wrong date, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday afternoon, 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, 11 a.m. Pacific. But she should be here. Uh, if you saw the movie and or participated in the book club, should be awesome counter-racist uh, view or listening, uh, being able to converse about the text with a white woman who thinks that this is great. So that's Monday. Back to this text. Uh, I was, I'm not really enthusiastic about the whole slave genre. I did not see the reboot of Roots uh, in 2016 and vowed. I, I did not see Nate Parker's, uh, what was it, Birth of a Nation. I'm not into all of the slave flicks. Said I'm not doing any more of those. We read uh, 12 Years a Slave and I had to watch the movie just because we read the book and I wanted to compare, see what they did. Hated the movie. I didn't like the book that much either. Uh, this, in fact, this reminds me of 12 Years a Slave to some degree. We haven't read that much of it yet, but we'll have to keep reading. But it does remind me of 12 Years, 12 years a Slave. They're both, you know, slave narratives. Uh, but I had some reservations about reading this book, even though it's like, hey, you know, it was mentioned in back-to-back -back books for different reasons. Dr. Curry and Pamela Evans Harris, the late, I said it would be good uh, since this book is mentioned so much. Let's go ahead and read it. We can the sexual terrorism already got it. We'll be alert for that already covered. But we can also, you know, read and uh, develop our skills, uh, deciphering written material, getting better with words, just the use of the term kind, things like that as we proceed with the text. Just based on what we read in the first segment, I feel a little bit better about uh, this selection, uh, some of the things that stood out in the text uh, talk about confusion in the introduction she says and this to me seems like a main point of why this book was written i do earnestly desire to arouse the women of the north to a realizing sense of the condition of two millions of women at the south still in bondage suffering what i suffered and most of them far worse this white people are ignorant about racism and once they know they will do better. They will solve this problem. It seems like that has been a part of our logic in trying to solve this problem for centuries. And obviously, that is not the case. I mean, 150 years of appealing to whites to stop being racist or to help solve this problem. And two centuries later, the problem is still here. This method is not going to work. We're going to have to try something else. Uh, next, let's see. I already mentioned kind, uh, even just examining some of the, the places where kind is used. Now, this is the editor. This is not uh, Harriet Jacobs. So the white editor says, secondly, the mistress with whom she lived, talking about Harriet Jacobs, uh, till she was 12 years old, was a kind, considerate friend. Now, that's like the triple uh, whammy. Kind, considerate friend. This is a slave owner. Kind, considerate friend white friends wow 
And then she continues, she says, who taught her to read and spell. I would even stop right there. White people, whether it's 1861 or 2019, because we're in a system of racism, white supremacy, they can be very helpful. That doesn't mean that they're not racist. Whether that is a white person teaching a nigra how to read or a white person giving Gus T. $2,000 to get teacher training. Both of those are instances where the white person did provide constructive help. That does not mean that that white person is not a racist. And I think apparently for centuries, that has been a major part of the confusion that racists at times, they can be helpful. That does not change the system of racism, white supremacy, and just seems like that long running aspect of confusion. Uh, let's see. The it, Continuing that this is all in the same paragraph. So kind, considerate friend. Thirdly, she was placed in favorable circumstances after she came to the North, having frequent intercourse with intelligent persons. I'll stop right there. Now, this was written in 1861. So the way that they're using words is not exactly the same as we use words in 2019. I would have to check to see if the sexual connotations of the word intercourse, uh, if those were in existence in 1861. But even if they weren't, since so much of this book, I mean, they, there are copies of this book where the cover image is Harriet Jacobs' nude body, where you can see her nude breasts exposed. So, I mean, that's at the core. The sexual exploitation is at the core of this book. So it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter whether uh, those connotations, whether that meaning of intercourse existed in 1861 when this book was written. But even that, to me, suggests things improved by this black female, this slave, black slave female, perhaps having sexual intercourse with whites made her life better. That idea is still very prevalent in 2019. Uh, next. So this is from the first chapter. Uh, oh, I thought this was really important. Uh, right, first paragraph, chapter one, uh, she says, my father was a carpenter and considered so intelligent and skillful in his trade that when buildings out of the common line were to be erected, he was sent for from long distances to be the head workman. That was the only part that I highlighted, even though uh, the above portion is important uh, because they do talk about how black people 1861 or 2019 are the biggest idiots ever. Uh, Dr. James Watson, wasn't he? He was just uh, saying that in the New York Times uh, and again saying that. Black people are ignorant worldwide and we don't need to waste any money in Africa. These are morons and buffoons. How could that be if you've got enslaved black people that you have worked and some of them threatened with the penalty of death if they learn to read or to try to educate themselves? And even under those circumstances, you have Frederick Douglass and people like Harriet Jacobs' father, who becomes a skilled carpenter, intelligent, sought for, can be made the head workman, I think, or yeah, I thought this was super important because you can have a system of racism, uh, white supremacy, where white people can select any Negro. President Obama, that's who I was thinking uh, when I was thinking of a slick talking non-white person who has a white parent, like hmm, President Obama. Uh, but you could have President Obama. We can put a Negro in the White House. This nigger is a great carpenter. We'll make him the foreman. We'll make him the head worker. That doesn't mean he's not a nigger. Doesn't even mean he's not a slave. Doesn't even control his own wages and what he's going to do with them. But he is the head worker. Workplace racism is tomorrow. Implore people all the time to remember that just because this is the supervisor, the manager, the CEO, 
the head workman, we're still in a system of racism, white supremacy. This person, if they are not white, they are not in charge. Uh, let's see. I, this reminded me of uh, Harriet Tubman. She said, I freed thousands of slaves. Could have freed thousands more if they had only known they were slaves. Where Harriet Jacobs writes, uh, they lived together, talking about her family. They lived together in a comfortable home. And though we were all slaves, I was so fondly shielded that I never dreamed I was a piece of merchandise trusted to them for safekeeping and liable to be demanded of them at any moment. Uh, I thought or I highlighted this because I think the system of racism whites, it seems they can do a very good job at tricking a lot of non-white people. It doesn't matter the time period at tricking them into thinking that they are not slaves, that we are not victims of racism when that actually is the case. It appears that could be manifest in a lot of different ways through the use of confusing terms, post-racial and or just having black people in a convenient or in a more comfortable environment and it's easy for whites to do that it's easy for them. what does it matter we dominate the whole universe so there's one nigra in a planet with billions oh okay we'll allow this one nigra to learn how to read we'll allow this one nigra to have a billion dollars and then maybe we'll take it back and put him in jail you know at the end of his life it's easy to do that that doesn't make them special it doesn't make them friendly it doesn't make them courteous it just means that whites they can be very confusing they can be very tricky so that you think they're not racist maybe racism doesn't even exist anymore when it totally absolutely does uh let's see the lending of the money i feel like we talked about that before because this book has been referenced a lot it was also referenced in uh delectable negro uh as well uh let's see about the Money being loaned to the mistress and her not paying it back. I feel like we talked about that before on the program. Uh, the breastfeeding certified prenatal instructor, uh, the portion uh, where she says, uh, in fact, my mother had been weaned at three months old that the babe of the mistress might be might obtain sufficient food three months. They, I think the current uh, guidelines are minimum two months of breastfeeding. For children, those are the current guidelines that white people say would be best for optimal health uh, for newborn babies. Two months of breastfeeding where that's exclusively what they're eating. I think it's even uh, five years is what I think the World Health Organization is, is what would be the best. First five years minimum, first two years. But three months? Are you serious? I don't even think babies have functional teeth. At, what do you guys? Black babies cost less. 1861, 2019. Uh, now, the kindly mistress, white woman, taught or allowed Harriet Jacobs to learn how to read, but then she promised that maybe I'll free you once you're done. You have the ability to do that. She says, while I was with her, she taught me to read and spell, and for this privilege, which so rarely falls to the lot of a slave, I bless her memory. Uh, and she says, I try not to think with I try to think with less bitterness of this act of injustice uh, with her not being freed. I think some of that is the religion of, of racism, white supremacy, uh, and just, you know, got to forgive, got to forgive, no matter, you know, what the terrorism and abuse that I suffer, got to forgive whites and be thankful that, you know, they did give me a few crumbs or let me learn how to read. Uh, let's see. From chapter two. 
when Mr. Fuller says we are attempted parents, attempted mothers, attempted fathers, Harriet Jacobs, she says, uh, the good grandmother tried to comfort me. Who knows the ways of God? She said, perhaps they have been kindly taken from the evil days to come. Talking about when her parents died years afterwards, I often thought of this. She promised to be a mother to her grandchildren so far as she might be permitted to do so. And I thought that was so important because we could all still say that right now. And I say we meaning any black person in the known universe. If you are a attempted mother, attempted father, you could say the exact same thing. And that would be truthful and logical that I'm going to do the best job that I can. I promise to be a mother to you, a father to my children so far as I might be permitted to do so by whites. And they prove that whites I'm talking about, they prove that every day. If what I'm saying is inaccurate, Folks can chime in. Let me know. Don't want to be talking nonsense. Even the mention of the grandmother, because she seems Harriet Jacobs gives so much appreciation for her grandmother's help uh, in losing her parents and having such a difficult uh, childhood uh, after, you know, the the happy period ended. Uh, It reminded me, Dr. Welsing, uh, for so many years, she would talk about the importance of uh, black grandmothers for centuries, even now, 2019. uh, And she would talk about uh, just the her vile response to the Tyler Perry films and depictions of black grandmothers and saying how they invested so much of their time and energy uh, in life force, uh, in helping black children and survival units as best they could. Uh, a lot of what Harriet Jacobs talks about with her grandmother here reminded me of Dr. Welsing. Uh, the portion where Auntie Marthy is sold on the plantation, this struck me as being pretty authentic as well. And she says, uh, when the day of the sale came, she took her place among the chattels. And at first call, at first call, she sprang upon the auction block. Many voices called out, shame, shame. Who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there. That is no place for you. <clears throat> now, I thought about that and I only highlighted the words shame. We're in a system of racism, white supremacy. We're at an auction. Children are being bid on. Children are being snatched from their parents. Pregnant mothers are being bid on. We're bidding on individuals, male and female, with the intent to rape them. That's why they're being purchased. That was covered in Edward Baptist. The half has never been told also on the Cows Book Club. In that context, for anyone to have the audacity to yell out shame, with whites, period, in a system of racism, white supremacy. Shame? Really? At what point have whites demonstrated shame and or guilt about anything that they've done to black people, non-white people, anywhere in the universe at any time? When? What are, what are the moments when they have shown shame? And that that shame and or guilt is going to stop them from practicing racism, white supremacy. I'm not aware this entire scene is though whites found something and particularly they taught Aunt Marthy. She had been such a, a well-respected and intelligent, good character, faithful woman for all these years. She just came back and taught, I think a few chapters later, she just talks about the policy, the institutional practice for elderly Negros. What was it? They would wait. They would work you to death 
till you couldn't even function anymore, and then we'll pawn you off on whoever I can get $20 for. We'll sell you down the river. That's what they said was the policy for elderly Negroes. And they even uh, in New York had the burial site where they had Negroes that just got worked to death, literally worked to death. That's what they did with Negroes. And they to have a scene where it's as though whites, oh my goodness, we have such appreciation for the years that this Negroes has allowed us to rape her and beat her and steal her children, whatever else we wanted to do with her life force. Oh, we're so ashamed that now she's going to be sold for a biscuit and a can of molasses. Not understanding white people. Uh, let's see. I thought it was great. This, at least the first portion to me, seems like very much an indictment of uh, white women. So many slave narratives focus on Simon Legreer's the the cruel white male master, and it seems like this book has a lot of white woman participation in running the plantation. Big Mama on the house, uh, the portion where she says, uh, "Mrs. Flint." Like many Southern white women, I'm inserting the white, was totally deficient in energy. She had not strength to superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong that she could sit in her easy chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from every stroke of the lash. She was a member of the church, the religion of white supremacy, but partaking of the Lord's Supper did not seem to put her in a Christian frame of mind. That's not what that's not the frame of mind. She would attend the church the religion of white supremacy. That's what puts you in the correct frame of mind to do some beatings, to watch the blood drip off the lash of a nigger for an hour. That is the religion of white supremacy. She says, uh, I thought the control of food, that's one that's big, that's talked about slaves uh, being starved frequently, the delectable Negro, top 10 Vincent Woodard slaves being starred and uh, slaves being force fed that came up many times I think that's the same thing delectable negro taking food I can stuff the negro to death and I can starve him out see him all emaciated both ends controlling uh, food controlling of the black body in every way shape form uh, and that is a consumption literal and figurative consumption uh, of the negro let's see Uh, anything else I wanted to get in before I double check if any other folks have commentary? Let's see. I'll share two more. Uh, this was, I uh, thought, one of the most important uh, sections. The, she got new shoes. It snowed. The racist mistress didn't like that her shoes made noise, so she made her take her shoes off and throw them in the fireplace, and then she had to walk in the snow, and she thought she was going to get sick and die. She writes, I had imagined if I died or was laid up for some time that my mistress would feel a twinge of remorse that she had so hated the little imp as she styled me. It was my ignorance of that mistress that gave rise to such extravagant imaginings. Wow. That is well written, and that is, again, applicable to a lot of black people, 2019, with extravagant imaginings that in some way white people will be remorseful or somehow feel bad about the practice of racism and be moved to change their way. That is not the case at all. Uh, I said I was going to do two, so one more. 
the last one. Um, oh, there were two. <laughs> this, I'll do one and I'll save the other for later. Dr. Tommy Curry, I think the word that he coined or used frequently in The Man Not was thingified talking about black males and their fungibility that since we are not males and black females are not women, that we're just whatever whites want. If that means, you know, a white man wants to rape a black male. So what if that means a white woman wants to rape a black male? So what if that means we want to cut off your genitals and you know, you're not a male at all. You're just some thing, whatever we want you to be at that moment. That's what, unfortunately, that's the role of the victims. That's the role of blacks in the system of white supremacy. Jacob's right. Uh, they had no suspicion that it belonged to a slave. Oh, and back up and make sure I give. Uh, she's talking about when her brother attempted to escape. Benjamin, uh, retired firefighter, talks about how this struck him as being authentic. So he tries to escape. She says, for once his white face did him a kindly service. They had no suspicion that it belonged to a slave. Otherwise, the law would have been followed out to the letter and the thing, and she has that in italics, rendered back to slavery. So the, the thing referencing Benjamin, uh, that immediately brought me back to the thingification. And she's talking about a black male, the thingification uh, of black males, black people in the system of white supremacy. It doesn't matter that you want to be free. It doesn't matter what Benjamin thinks. You are to be thingified, whatever we want. I'll stop there. Any other folks have uh, commentary that they wanted to share on the first audio segment? Uh, yes, to add on, uh, there was, well, I did hear a lot of buying buying and selling uh, in the first, first uh, part, uh, which was something that was constant and uh i would say the uh mental trauma from that very unnatural uh transition uh of buying and selling people uh still factors into our uh, psychological uh doings as uh victims of racism and white supremacy. Uh, the term uh, sold down the river is a metaphor that has been, been, been uh, used through centuries just from that actually being a reality with non-white black people in this part of the world. Uh, you can still use that, that uh metaphor today and you would still get a lot of understanding uh out of it uh because of how vast that was especially during the time i guess when this book was 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 written um there was something else that i was thinking about uh, uh, uh something else oh boy i can't think of it right now <laughs> uh something else anyway go to somebody else <laughs> i just can't think of right now it'll come back i'm sure it will i'm sure take a note if you get it before we wrap up we will make time to include it uh, yeah. any other folks have comments questions thoughts they want to get in before we get to audio segment number two 
Oh, I I know I know what what it was. We knew it. Uh, <laughs> uh, one has to take into consideration that uh, there were uh, some uh, non-white black people uh, during that time who actually were receiving income uh, to change the uh, from this book the the movie uh, Roots. Uh, showed that in the character of Chicken George, uh, uh, and I've heard it. In, I heard it. I've heard it in the first reading, also, uh, as far as getting an income. But but because there was a lot of uh, exchange of monies and whatnot. But white people, as they do today, to a more refined means, controls our expenditures with the monies that we have. Uh, and, uh, so all of that, you know, is, uh, just a refined means of how white people practice racism. Uh, mentioning about Frederick Douglass, who was also getting, he was a skilled person that got paid. Uh, and, and as I mentioned before, is white people control on what you can spend that on. Uh, you can't, uh, uh, the whole idea of quote unquote buying one's freedom doesn't make any logical sense to me, uh, under the system of racist white supremacy. It doesn't make any sense. I wonder what other people think about that also, buying your freedom. Seems like a dangerous proposition uh, in this particular <laughs> system, because for a lot of black people, you could buy your freedom and then be reminded that you are still a Negro and be stolen 12 years a slave uh, and sent right back. So, yeah, in addition right. to you could just, you know, be allowed to stay in Canada or Boston or what have you and, you know, <clears throat> experience what it's like to be a Negro there as opposed to Mississippi or Louisiana. Uh, other folk, any other questions, comments, thoughts, folks want to get in before we get to audio segment number two, again, picking up on chapter five. Everybody satisfied or. I'll assume everyone is good for the moment. Uh, we will get to audio segment number two. If you had a thought, question, comment you didn't get to share, uh, write it down. Uh, this way we will have ample time to share once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, again, pay attention to the role of religion. I think that'll probably be throughout uh, as we read the text, the role of religion. Uh, <laughs> I guess just be mindful of how many whites are classified as kind. Oh, I've, that's the one I'll get in. The white man who doesn't rat on Benjamin, even that she included that this white man who doesn't write on Benjamin. Now, he also owns Negras. Again, you have racists. I am sure Bull Connor. There might have been a day he gave a sandwich to a black person. There might have been a day he gave a glass of water to a white person. There might have been a day Darren Wilson gave a black person. He didn't run them over with his vehicle. He stopped them and didn't give them a ticket. There might have been a day where that happened. That doesn't mean he's not a racist. 
he, Bull Connor, any other white person. Long-standing, long-standing where we get easily confused and are encouraged to accept that line of thinking that this white person did this alleged good deed for a black person so they cannot be racist. With that, we will get started. Context of white supremacy. Audio segment number two, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, Harriet Jacobs. Chapter 5. The Trials of Girlhood During the first years of my service in Dr. Flint's family, I was accustomed to share some indulgences with the children of my mistress. Though this seemed to me no more than right, I was grateful for it, and tried to merit the kindness by the faithful discharge of my duties. But I now entered on my fifteenth year, a sad epoch in the life of a slave-girl. My master began to whisper foul words in my ear. Young as I was, I could not remain ignorant of their import. I tried to treat them with indifference or contempt. My master's age, my extreme youth, and the fear that his conduct would be reported to my grandmother, made him bear this treatment for many months. He was a crafty man, and resorted to many means to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes he had stormy, terrific ways, that made his victims tremble. Sometimes he assumed a gentleness that he thought must surely subdue. Of the two, I preferred his stormy moods, although they left me trembling. He tried his utmost to corrupt the pure principles my grandmother had instilled. He peopled my young mind with unclean images, such as only a vile monster could think of. I turned from him with disgust and hatred. But he was my master. I was compelled to live under the same roof with him, where I saw a man forty years my senior daily violating the most sacred commandments of nature. He told me I was his property, that I must be subject to his will in all things. My soul revolted against the mean tyranny. But where could I turn for protection? No matter whether the slave-girl be as black as ebony or as fair as her mistress. In either case there is no shadow of law to protect her from insult, from violence, or even from death. All these are inflicted by fiends who bear the shape of men. The mistress, who ought to protect the helpless victim, has no other feelings towards her but those of jealousy and rage. The degradation, the wrongs, the vices that grow out of slavery, are more than I can describe. They are greater than you would willingly believe. Surely, if you credited one-half the truths that are told you concerning the helpless millions suffering in this cruel bondage, you at the North would not help to tighten the yoke. You surely would refuse to do for the Master, on your own soil, the mean and cruel work which trained bloodhounds and the lowest class of whites do for him at the South. Everywhere the years bring to all enough of sin and sorrow. But in slavery, the very dawn of life is darkened by these shadows. Even the little child, who is accustomed to wait on her mistress and on her children, will learn, before she is twelve years old, why it is that her mistress hates such and such a one among the slaves. Perhaps the child's own mother is among those hated ones. She listens to violent outbreaks of jealous passion, and cannot help understanding what is the cause. She will become prematurely knowing and evil things. Soon she will learn to tremble when she hears her master's footfall. She will be compelled to realize that she is no longer a child. If God has bestowed beauty upon her, it will prove her greatest curse. That which commands admiration in the white woman only hastens the degradation of the female slave. I know that some are too much brutalized by slavery to feel the humiliation of their position, but many slaves feel it most acutely, and shrink from the memory of it. 
I cannot tell how much I suffered in the presence of these wrongs, nor how I am still pained by the retrospect. My master met me at every turn, reminding me that I belonged to him, and swearing by heaven and earth that he would compel me to submit to him. If I went out for a breath of fresh air, after a day of unwearied toil, his footsteps dogged me. If I knelt by my mother's grave, his dark shadow fell on me even there. The light heart which nature had given me became heavy with sad forebodings. The other slaves in my master's house noticed the change. Many of them pitied me, but none dared to ask the cause. They had no need to inquire. They knew too well the guilty practices under that roof, and they were aware that to speak of them was an offence that never went unpunished. I longed for some one to confide in. I would have given the world to have laid my head on my grandmother's faithful bosom and told her all my troubles. But Dr. Flint swore he would kill me, if I was not as silent as the grave. Then, although my grandmother was all in all to me, I feared her as well as loved her. I had been accustomed to look up to her with a respect bordering upon awe. I was very young, and felt shamefaced about telling her such impure things, and especially as I knew her to be very strict on such subjects. Moreover, she was a woman of high spirit. She was usually very quiet in her demeanour, but if her indignation was once roused, it was not very easily quelled. I had been told that she once chased a white gentleman with a loaded pistol, because he insulted one of her daughters. I dreaded the consequences of a violent outbreak, and both pride and fear kept me silent. But though I did not confide in my grandmother, and even evaded her vigilant watchfulness and inquiry, her presence in the neighbourhood was some protection to me. Though she had been a slave, Dr. Flint was afraid of her. He dreaded her scorching rebukes. Moreover, she was known and patronised by many people, and he did not wish to have his villainy made public. It was lucky for me that I did not live on a distant plantation, but in a town not so large that the inhabitants were ignorant of each other's affairs. Bad as are the laws and customs in a slave-holding community, the doctor, as a professional man, deemed it prudent to keep up some outward show of decency. Oh, what days and nights of fear and sorrow that man caused me! Reader, it is not to awaken sympathy for myself that I am telling you truthfully what I suffered in slavery. I do it to kindle a flame of compassion in your hearts for my sisters who are still in bondage, suffering as I once suffered. I once saw two beautiful children playing together. One was a fair white child, the other was her slave, and also her sister. When I saw them embracing each other, and heard their joyous laughter, I turned sadly away from the lovely sight. I foresaw the inevitable blight that would fall on the little slave's heart. I knew how soon her laughter would be changed to sighs. The fair child grew up to be a still fairer woman. From childhood to womanhood her pathway was blooming with flowers, and overarched by a sunny sky. Scarcely one day of her life had been clouded when the sun rose on her happy bridal morning. How had those years dealt with her slave's sister, the little playmate of her childhood? She also was very beautiful, but the flowers and sunshine of love were not for her. She drank the cup of sin, and shame, and misery, whereof her persecuted race are compelled to drink. In view of these things, why are ye silent? ye free men and women of the North, why do your tongues falter in maintenance of the right? Would that I had more ability! But my heart is so full, 
and my pen is so weak. There are noble men and women who plead for us, striving to help those who cannot help themselves. God bless them. God give them strength and courage to go on. God bless those everywhere who are laboring to advance the cause of humanity. Chapter 6 The Jealous Mistress I would ten thousand times rather that my children should be the half-starved paupers of Ireland than to be the most pampered among the slaves of America. I would rather drudge out my life on a cotton plantation, till the grave opened to give me rest, than to live with an unprincipled master and a jealous mistress. The felon's home in a penitentiary is preferable. He may repent, and turn from the error of his ways, and so find peace. But it is not so with a favorite slave. She is not allowed to have any pride of character. It is deemed a crime in her to wish to be virtuous. Mrs. Flint possessed the key to her husband's character before I was born. She might have used this knowledge to counsel and screen the young and the innocent among her slaves. But for them she had no sympathy. They were the objects of her constant suspicion and malevolence. She watched her husband with unceasing vigilance, but he was well practised in means to evade it. What he could not find opportunity to say in words, he manifested in signs. He invented more than were ever thought of in a deaf and dumb asylum. I let them pass, as if I did not understand what he meant, and many were the curses and threats bestowed on me for my stupidity. One day he caught me teaching myself to write. He frowned, as if he was not well pleased, but I suppose he came to the conclusion that such an accomplishment might help to advance his favourite scheme. Before long, notes were often slipped into my hand. I would return them, saying, "'I can't read them, sir.' "'Can't you?' he replied. Then I must read them to you. He always finished the reading by asking, Do you understand? Sometimes he would complain of the heat of the tea-room, and order his supper to be placed on a small table in the piazza. He would seat himself there with a well-satisfied smile, and tell me to stand by and brush away the flies. He would eat very slowly, pausing between the mouthfuls. These intervals were employed in describing the happiness that I was so foolishly throwing away, and in threatening me with the penalty that finally awaited my stubborn disobedience. He boasted much of the forbearance he had exercised towards me, and reminded me that there was a limit to his patience. When I succeeded in avoiding opportunities for him to talk to me at home, I was ordered to come to his office, to do some errand. When there, I was obliged to stand and listen to such language as he saw fit to address to me. Sometimes I so openly expressed my contempt for him, that he would become violently enraged, and I wondered why he did not strike me. Circumstances he was, he probably thought it was better policy to be forbearing. But the state of things grew worse and worse daily. In desperation I told him that I must and would apply to my grandmother for protection. He threatened me with death, and worse than death, if I made any complaint to her. Strange to say, I did not despair. I was naturally of a buoyant disposition, and always I had a hope of somehow getting out of his clutches. Like many a poor, simple slave before me, I trusted that some threads of joy would yet be woven into my dark destiny. I had entered my sixteenth year, and every day it became more apparent that my presence was intolerable to Mrs. Flint. Angry words frequently passed between her and her husband. He had never punished me himself, and he would not allow anybody else to punish me. In that respect she was never satisfied. But, in her angry moods, no terms were too vile for her to bestow upon me. Yet I, 
whom she detested so bitterly, had far more pity for her than he had, whose duty it was to make her life happy. I never wronged her, or wished to wrong her, and one word of kindness from her would have brought me to her feet. After repeated quarrels between the doctor and his wife, he announced his intention to take his youngest daughter, then four years old, to sleep in his apartment. It was necessary that a servant should sleep in the same room, to be on hand if the child stirred. I was selected for that office, and informed for what purpose that arrangement had been made. By managing to keep within sight of people, as much as possible, during the daytime, I had hitherto succeeded in eluding my master, though a razor was often held to my throat, to force me to change this line of policy. At night I slept by the side of my great-aunt, where I felt safe. He was too prudent to come into her room. She was an old woman, and had been in the family many years. Moreover, as a married man and a professional man, he deemed it necessary to save appearances in some degree. But he resolved to remove the obstacle in the way of his scheme, and he thought he had planned it so that he should evade suspicion. He was well aware how much I prized my refuge by the side of my old aunt, and he determined to dispossess me of it. The first night the doctor had the little child in his room alone. The next morning I was ordered to take my station as nurse the following night. A kind providence interposed in my favour. During the day Mrs. Flint heard of this new arrangement, and a storm followed. I rejoiced to hear it rage. After a while my mistress sent for me to come to her room. Her first question was, "'Did you know you were to sleep in the doctor's room?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'Who told you?' "'My master.' "'Will you answer truly all the questions I ask?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'Tell me, then, as you hope to be forgiven, are you innocent of what I have accused you?' "'I am.' She handed me a Bible, and said, "'Lay your hand on your heart, kiss this holy book, and swear before God that you tell me the truth.' I took the oath she required, and I did it with a clear conscience. "'You have taken God's holy word to testify your innocence,' said she. "'If you have deceived me, beware. Now take this stool, sit down, look me directly in the face, and tell me all that has passed between your master and you.' I did as she ordered. As I went on with my account, her colour changed frequently. She wept, and sometimes groaned. She spoke in tones so sad that I was touched by her grief. The tears came to my eyes. But I was soon convinced that her emotions arose from anger and wounded pride. She felt that her marriage vows were desecrated, her dignity insulted. But she had no compassion for the poor victim of her husband's perfidy. She pitied herself as a martyr. But she was incapable of feeling for the condition of shame and misery in which her unfortunate, helpless slave was placed. Yet perhaps she had some touch of feeling for me, for when the conference was ended, she spoke kindly, and promised to protect me. I should have been much comforted by this assurance if I could have had confidence in it, but my experiences in slavery had filled me with distrust. She was not a very refined woman, and had not much control over her passions. I was an object of her jealousy, and consequently, of her hatred." and I knew I could not expect kindness or confidence from her, under the circumstances in which I was placed. I could not blame her. Slaveholders' wives feel as other women would under similar circumstances. The fire of her temper kindled from small sparks, and now the flame became so intense that the doctor was obliged to give up his intended arrangement. I knew I had ignited the torch, and I expected to suffer for it afterwards. 
but I felt too thankful to my mistress for the timely aid she rendered me to care much about that. She now took me to sleep in a room adjoining her own. There I was an object of her especial care, though not to her especial comfort, for she spent many a sleepless night to watch over me. Sometimes I woke up and found her bending over me. At other times she whispered in my ear, as though it was her husband who was speaking to me, and listened to hear what I would answer. If she startled me on such occasions, she would glide stealthily away, and the next morning she would tell me I had been talking in my sleep, and ask who I was talking to. At last I began to be fearful for my life. It had been often threatened, and you can imagine, better than I can describe, what an unpleasant sensation it must produce to wake up in the dead of night and find a jealous woman bending over you. Terrible as this experience was, I had fears that it would give place to one more terrible. My mistress grew weary of her vigils. They did not prove satisfactory. She changed her tactics. She now tried the trick of accusing my master of crime, in my presence, and gave my name as the author of the accusation. To my utter astonishment, he replied, "'I don't believe it. But if she did acknowledge it, you tortured her into exposing me.' Tortured into exposing him? Truly, Satan had no difficulty in distinguishing the colour of his soul. I understood his object in making this false representation. It was to show me that I gained nothing by seeking the protection of my mistress, that the power was still all in his own hands. I pitied Mrs. Flint. She was a second wife, many years the junior of her husband, and the hoary-headed miscreant was enough to try the patience of a wiser and better woman. She was completely foiled, and knew not how to proceed. She would gladly have had me flogged for my supposed false oath, but, as I have already stated, the doctor never allowed any one to whip me. The old sinner was politic. The application of the lash might have led to remarks that would have exposed him in the eyes of his children and grandchildren. How often did I rejoice that I lived in a town where all the inhabitants knew each other! If I had been on a remote plantation, or lost among the multitude of a crowded city, I should not be a living woman at this day. The secrets of slavery are concealed like those of the Inquisition. My master was, to my knowledge, the father of eleven slaves. But did the mothers dare to tell who was the father of their children? Did the other slaves dare to allude to it, except in whispers among themselves? No, indeed. They knew too well the terrible consequences. My grandmother could not avoid seeing things which excited her suspicions. She was uneasy about me, and tried various ways to buy me, but the never-changing answer was always repeated. Linda does not belong to me. She is my daughter's property, and I have no legal right to sell her. The conscientious man! He was too scrupulous to sell me, but he had no scruples whatever about committing a much greater wrong against the helpless young girl, placed under his guardianship as his daughter's property. Sometimes my persecutor would ask me whether I would like to be sold. I told him I would rather be sold to anybody than to lead such a life as I did. On such occasions he would assume the air of a very injured individual, and reproach me for my ingratitude. "'Did I not take you into the house, and make you the companion of my own children?' he would say. "'Have I ever treated you like a negro? I have never allowed you to be punished, not even to please your mistress. And this is the recompense I get, you ungrateful girl!' I answered that he had reasons of his own for screening me from punishment, and that the course he pursued made my mistress hate me, and persecute me. If I wept, he would say, "'Poor child! Don't cry! Don't cry! I will make peace for you with your mistress. Only let me arrange matters in my own way. Poor foolish girl! You don't know what is for your own good. 
I would cherish you. I would make a lady of you. Now go and think of all I have promised you. I did think of it. Reader, I draw no imaginary pictures of southern homes. I am telling you the plain truth. Yet when victims make their escape from the wild beast of slavery, northerners consent to act the part of bloodhounds, and hunt the poor fugitive back into his den, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Nay, more, they are not only willing but proud to give their daughters in marriage to slaveholders. The poor girls have romantic notions of a sunny clime, and of the flowering vines that all the year round shade a happy home. To what disappointments are they destined? The young wife soon learns that the husband in whose hand she has placed her happiness pays no regard to his marriage vows. Children of every shade of complexion play with her own fair babies, and too well she knows that they are born unto him of his own household. Jealousy and hatred enter the flowery home, and it is ravaged of its loveliness. Southern women often marry a man knowing that he is the father of many little slaves. They do not trouble themselves about it. They regard such children as property, as marketable as the pigs on the plantation, and it is seldom that they do not make them aware of this, by passing them into the slave-trader's hands as soon as possible, and thus getting them out of their sight. I am glad to say that there are some honourable exceptions. I have myself known two southern wives, who exhorted their husbands to free those slaves towards whom they stood in a parental relation, and their request was granted. These husbands blushed before the superior nobleness of their wives' natures. Though they had only counselled them to do that which was their duty to do, it commanded their respect, and rendered their conduct more exemplary. Concealment was at an end, and confidence took the place of distrust. Though this bad institution deadens the moral sense, even in white women, to a fearful extent, it is not altogether extinct. I have heard southern ladies say of Mr. Such-a-one, he not only thinks it no disgrace to be the father of those little niggers, but he is not ashamed to call himself their master. I declare, such things ought not to be tolerated in any decent society. CHAPTER Seven, THE LOVER Why does the slave ever love? Why allow the tendrils of the heart to twine around objects which may at any moment be wrenched away by the hand of violence? When separations come by the hand of death, the pious soul can bow in resignation, and say, Not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. But when the ruthless hand of man strikes the blow, regardless of the misery he causes, it is hard to be submissive. I did not reason thus when I was a young girl. Youth will be youth. I loved, and I indulged the hope that the dark clouds around me would turn out a bright lining. I forgot that in the land of my birth the shadows are too dense for light to penetrate. A land where laughter is not mirth, nor thought the mind, nor words a language, nor e'en men mankind, where cries reply to curses, shrieks to blows, and each is tortured in his separate hell. There was in the neighbourhood a young coloured carpenter, a free-born man. We had been well acquainted in childhood, and frequently met together afterwards. We became mutually attached, and he proposed to marry me. I loved him with all the ardour of a young girl's first love. But when I reflected that I was a slave, and that the laws gave no sanction to the marriage of such, my heart sank within me. My lover wanted to buy me, but I knew that Dr. Flint was too willful and arbitrary a man to consent to that arrangement. From him I was sure of experiencing all sort of opposition, 
and I had nothing to hope from my mistress. She would have been delighted to have got rid of me, but not in that way. It would have relieved her mind of a burden if she could have seen me sold to some distant state. But if I was married near home, I should be just as much in her husband's power as I had previously been. For the husband of a slave has no power to protect her. Moreover, my mistress, like many others, seemed to think that slaves had no right to any family ties of their own, that they were created merely to wait upon the family of the mistress. I once heard her abuse a young slave-girl, who told her that a coloured man wanted to make her his wife. "'I will have you peeled and pickled, my lady,' said she, "'if I ever hear you mention that subject again. Do you suppose that I will have you tending my children with the children of that nigger?' The girl to whom she said this had a mulatto child, of course not acknowledged by its father. The poor black man who loved her would have been proud to acknowledge his helpless offspring. Many and anxious were the thoughts I revolved in my mind. I was at a loss what to do. Above all things I was desirous to spare my lover the insults that had cut so deeply into my own soul. I talked with my grandmother about it, and partly told her my fears. I did not dare to tell her the worst. She had long suspected all was not right, and if I confirmed her suspicions I knew a storm would rise that would prove the overthrow of all my hopes. This love-dream had been my support through many trials, and I could not bear to run the risk of having it suddenly dissipated. There was a lady in the neighbourhood, a particular friend of Dr. Flint's, who often visited the house. I had a great respect for her, and she had always manifested a friendly interest in me. Grandmother thought she would have great influence with the doctor. I went to this lady and told her my story. I told her I was aware that my lover's being a free-born man would prove a great objection, but he wanted to buy me, and if Dr. Flint would consent to that arrangement, I felt sure he would be willing to pay any reasonable price. She knew that Mrs. Flint disliked me. Therefore I ventured to suggest that perhaps my mistress would approve of my being sold, as that would rid her of me. The lady listened with kindly sympathy, and promised to do her utmost to promote my wishes. She had an interview with the doctor, and I believe she pleaded my cause earnestly. But it was all to no purpose. How I dreaded my master now! Every minute I expected to be summoned to his presence. But the day passed, and I heard nothing from him. The next morning a message was brought to me. Master wants you in his study. I found the door ajar, and I stood a moment gazing at the hateful man who claimed a right to rule me, body and soul. I entered and tried to appear calm. I did not want him to know how much my heart was bleeding. He looked fixedly at me, with an expression which seemed to say, I have half a mind to kill you on the spot. At last he broke the silence, and that was a relief to both of us. "'So you want to be married, do you?' said he. "'And to a free nigger?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, I'll soon convince you whether I am your master.' or the nigger-fellow you honour so highly. If you must have a husband, you may take up with one of my slaves." What a situation I should be in, as the wife of one of his slaves, even if my heart had been interested! I replied, "'Don't you suppose, sir, that a slave can have some preference about marrying? Do you suppose that all men are alike to her?' "'Do you love this nigger?' said he, abruptly. "'Yes, sir.' "'How dare you tell me so!' he exclaimed in great wrath. After a slight pause he added, "'I supposed you thought more of yourself, that you felt above the insults of such puppies.' I replied, 
If he is a puppy, I am a puppy, for we are both of the negro race. It is right and honourable for us to love each other. The man you call a puppy never insulted me, sir, and he would not love me if he did not believe me to be a virtuous woman." He sprang upon me like a tiger, and gave me a stunning blow. It was the first time he had ever struck me, and fear did not enable me to control my anger. When I had recovered a little from the effects, I exclaimed, "'You have struck me for answering you honestly. How I despise you!' There was silence for some minutes. Perhaps he was deciding what should be my punishment, or perhaps he wanted to give me time to reflect on what I had said, and to whom I had said it. Finally he asked, "'Do you know what you have said?' "'Yes, sir. But your treatment drove me to it. Do you know that I have a right to do as I like with you? That I can kill you, if I please? You have tried to kill me, and I wish you had. But you have no right to do as you like with me." "'Silence!' he exclaimed, in a thundering voice. "'By heavens, girl, you forget yourself too far. Are you mad? If you are, I will soon bring you to your senses. Do you think any other master would bear what I have borne from you this morning? Many masters would have killed you on the spot. How would you like to be sent to jail for your insolence?" "'I know I have been disrespectful, sir,' I replied. "'But you drove me to it. I couldn't help it. As for the jail, there would be more peace for me there than there is here.' "'You deserve to go there,' said he, and to be under such treatment, that you would forget the meaning of the word peace. It would do you good. It would take some of your high notions out of you. But I am not ready to send you there yet, notwithstanding your ingratitude for all my kindness and forbearance. You have been the plague of my life. I have wanted to make you happy, and I have been repaid with the basest ingratitude. But though you have proved yourself incapable of appreciating my kindness, I will be lenient towards you, Linda. I will give you one more chance to redeem your character. If you behave yourself, and do as I require, I will forgive you, and treat you as I have always done. But if you disobey me, I will punish you as I would the meanest slave on my plantation. Never let me hear that fellow's name mentioned again. If I ever know of your speaking to him, I will cowhide you both, and if I catch him lurking about my premises, I will shoot him as soon as I would a dog. Do you hear what I say? I'll teach you a lesson about marriage and free niggers. Now go, and let this be the last time I have occasion to speak to you on this subject." Reader, did you ever hate? I hope not. I never did but once, and I trust I never shall again. Somebody has called it the atmosphere of hell, and I believe it is so. For a fortnight the doctor did not speak to me. He thought to mortify me, to make me feel that I had disgraced myself by receiving the honourable addresses of a respectable coloured man, in preference to the base proposals of a white man. But though his lips disdained to address me, his eyes were very loquacious. No animal ever watched its prey more narrowly than he watched me. He knew that I could write, though he had failed to make me read his letters, and he was now troubled lest I should exchange letters with another man. After a while he became weary of silence, and I was sorry for it. One morning, as he passed through the hall to leave the house, he contrived to thrust a note into my hand. I thought I had better read it, and spare myself the vexation of having him read it to me. It expressed regret for the blow he had given me, and reminded me that I myself was wholly to blame for it. 
He hoped I had become convinced of the injury I was doing myself, by incurring his displeasure. He wrote that he had made up his mind to go to Louisiana, that he should take several slaves with him, and intended I should be one of the number. My mistress would remain where she was, therefore I should have nothing to fear from that quarter. If I merited kindness from him, he assured me that it would be lavishly bestowed. He begged me to think over the matter, and answer the following day. The next morning I was called to carry a pair of scissors to his room. I laid them on the table, with the letter beside them. He thought that it was my answer, and did not call me back. I went as usual to attend my young mistress to and from school. He met me in the street, and ordered me to stop at his office on my way back. When I entered, he showed me his letter, and asked me why I had not answered it. I replied, I am your daughter's property, and it is in your power to send me, or take me, wherever you please. He said he was very glad to find me so willing to go, and that we should start early in the autumn. He had a large practice in the town, and I rather thought he had made up the story merely to frighten me. However that might be, I was determined that I would never go to Louisiana with him. Summer passed away, and early in the autumn Dr. Flint's eldest son was sent to Louisiana to examine the country, with a view to emigrating. That news did not disturb me. I knew very well that I should not be sent with him. That I had not been taken to the plantation before this time, was owing to the fact that his son was there. He was jealous of his son, and jealousy of the overseer had kept him from punishing me, by sending me into the fields to work. Is it strange, that I was not proud of these protectors? As for the overseer, he was a man for whom I had less respect than I had for a bloodhound. Young Mr. Flint did not bring back a favourable report of Louisiana, and I heard no more of that scheme. Soon after this, my lover met me at the corner of the street, and I stopped to speak to him. Looking up, I saw my master watching us from his window. I hurried home, trembling with fear. I was sent for immediately to go to his room. He met me with a blow. "'When is mistress to be married?' said he, in a sneering tone. A shower of oaths and imprecations followed. How thankful I was that my lover was a free man, that my tyrant had no power to flog him for speaking to me in the street. Again and again I revolved in my mind how all this would end. There was no hope that the doctor would consent to sell me on any terms. He had an iron will, and was determined to keep me and to conquer me. My lover was an intelligent and religious man. Even if he could have obtained permission to marry me while I was a slave, the marriage would give him no power to protect me from my master. It would have made him miserable to witness the insults I should have been subjected to. And then, if we had children, I knew they must follow the condition of the mother. What a terrible blight that would be on the heart of a free, intelligent father! For his sake, I felt that I ought not to link his fate with my own unhappy destiny. He was going to Savannah to see about a little property left him by an uncle, and hard as it was to bring my feelings to it, I earnestly entreated him not to come back. I advised him to go to the free states, where his tongue would not be tied, and where his intelligence would be of more avail to him. He left me, still hoping the day would come when I could be bought. With me the lamp of hope had gone out. The dream of my girlhood was over. I felt lonely and desolate. Still I was not stripped of all. I still had my good grandmother, and my affectionate brother. When he put his arms round my neck, and looked into my eyes as if to read there the troubles I dared not tell, I felt that I still had something to love. 
But even that pleasant emotion was chilled by the reflection that he might be torn from me at any moment, by some sudden freak of my master. If he had known how we loved each other, I think he would have exulted in separating us. We often planned together how we could get to the north. But, as William remarked, such things are easier said than done. My movements were very closely watched, and we had no means of getting any money to defray our expenses. As for Grandmother, she was strongly opposed to her children's undertaking any such project. She had not forgotten poor Benjamin's sufferings, and she was afraid that if another child tried to escape, he would have a similar or a worse fate. To me, nothing seemed more dreadful than my present life. I said to myself, William must be free. He shall go to the North, and I will follow him. Many a slave sister has formed the same plans. End of chapter 7 Context of White Supremacy We will pick up on chapter 8 next Thursday. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code... Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have comments to share, feel free. Something to keep in mind as we proceed, as I said, I think Red shared this book is available for free, Amazon Prime. Lots of places, widely available online. Same question that I've asked with other books that we've read that are readily available. Invisible Man, Hate You Give. Uh, why do whites like this book so much? Because I think this book is uh, read in schools and has been for quite a while, unless I'm mistaken. Why do white people enjoy and circulate this book so much? One to think on as we proceed. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have comments, questions to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Well, I would say, uh, and based on the second reading uh, in particular, uh, the reason why whites are acceptable with this book is I thought that was the most subtlest uh, description of rape <laughs> that, that I've ever heard in a book. I mean, no details or anything. I, I, I didn't, even, didn't even hear the word sex at all or any derivative of the word. Uh, to whereas... Uh, well, either my imagination is running away. She was talking about rape, in the, it, for the most part, in the second reading, correct? Unless I'm mistaken. Okay, okay, okay. But it was very subtle uh, how it was described to, I mean, it's, it's almost like, sorry, I'm, uh, I, I apologize, but I would have to, I mean, that's what it sounded like to me. Uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't detailed uh, to whereas uh, someone could have did a better job of, in my opinion. Uh, and I would say 
uh, it kind of, it kind of, uh, I would say, with a white person, uh, makes them more comfortable with the idea of promoting this book uh, to make them uh, seem like they are, are interested into solving the problem. And uh, it's nothing's more further from the truth. Uh, and we're talking about especially during a time where they were not refined about their practices at all. Now, there was some some describing, description and describing on it, but it, it was very subtle compared to what it could have been uh, in, in, uh, in, the, in the descriptions. Uh, the relationship that she was describing with a white female, I would say that that is still is the uh, behavior or the thought of white females today in regards to non-white females, especially non-white black females. Unfortunately, due to the system of racism, white supremacy, I would say that non-white females are confused into thinking that white women uh, are different from what was being described uh, in this book. Uh, mm, that's all I have to say right now to somebody else. Uh, report much obliged retired firefighter others we've not heard from at all hello ma'am uh yes ma'am is this ari louisiana yes it is good evening Gus. good evening callers and listeners um i'm a little late in the uh broadcast tonight, but um, this is a, a book that I um, began reading some time ago, and I got about halfway through. I will admit I didn't finish it, but I had a question um, in the version that you all are covering. Um, was there any um, discussion about this being a possible work of fiction at all? Not in the introduction thus far, no. Okay, because in the version that I have, and um, next time um, I tune in, I will have it in front of me. The uh, the lady that presented um, this book, this particular book, she did a preface saying that um, it was unclear whether or not um, this was, uh, uh, you know, work of fiction or not, or actually autobiographical, which may lend to some of the um, more polite um, phrasing and, and putting of um, traumatic events. Um, not to take away from it at all, I, I really don't want to do that, but, um, you know, I was just wondering if that was something that was uh, said already or not. But um, lastly, before I go, um, the effects of white supremacy on what otherwise would be healthy relationships is um, what I'm gathering. Nevertheless, um, uh, Dr. Francis said that we don't have families, we have survival units. 
And um, what I just heard is is an indication of that, like in the context of white supremacy, um, non-black or excuse me, non-white black people um, cannot have or maintain healthy uh, relationships as man and woman. Someone is always interjecting or always saying what's going to happen out of jealousy, control, whatever. Just, just racism. Period. And I'll mute my mind. Thank you very much, everyone and Gus. Much obliged. Uh, the version, or oh yeah, the version I have, the 2000 Penguin edition. Doctor Nell Irvin Painter. In the introduction, she has uh, footnotes to, I guess, provide historical uh, documentation for some elements of the story, uh, which would tend to suggest some level of authenticity. Um, you can check, I guess that's the 2000 Penguin edition, but I'd be very interested to hear the intro or whatever it is, the notes addressing whether or not it's uh, fabricated uh, from maybe next week, if you can bring it in. I know the other 12 Years a Slave and some of the other uh, Black Cargo, Cujo, when we read that, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, I think I had suspicion, questions about whether or not that was fabricated also. So that would not be the first time that such a charge has been leveled. Uh, other folks who have, we have not heard from, there are other folks we've not heard from at all. Hello. Can I be heard? Oh. Heard both of you. Uh, let's see. Well, you can go ahead. Right on. Thank you, Princess. Okay, thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, in regards to the prior young lady's um, comment, this book, I guess a lot of people like the name claim to this book because this one has somebody's name, Walter, Walter something, a uh, Walter Teller. And on the little note on the back, it says that Linda Brett, Harry Jack. Jacobs, excuse me, was born a slave in North Carolina around 1813 and became a fugitive in the 1830s. Although her life as a slave in the American South and her fugitive years in the Northeast are well documented, little is known of her later life. And then she died in 1897. So I guess this is trying to say that her, this history or account of her life is true, because this would be before... Um, I guess the time frame of it, 1813 to 1830, which I don't know if that's right either because did she say she ran away? She was 27. So I'm going to have to check this, read this different introduction because it's different. It's wonderful, I guess, how a lot of people lay claim to this to this history. Um, but another thing I want to bring up, I guess that last name Flint, I don't guess I don't know if it's real or not. I could have said she changed the names. The names were changed. If that name was changed, I feel, you know, I don't know if that's the appropriate name, but I know it wasn't done by accident because I looked up Flint saying it's a hard stone, but when you hit it, there's a spark. And I don't know if these people were so evil to her that it was like, oh, I really got to get out of this. Because in the beginning, she went, oh, they're so nice. I have a wonderful mistress, la, la, la. And then these people, she was like, oh, no, this is, this is horrible. We got we have to go. I don't know what I have to do, but I'm gonna have to get out of this. Um, so I don't know if that's why that name was chosen for these partic- for these particular masters, owners, slaves, 
horrible white people, whatever you want to call them. Um, so I thought that was interesting that that was the name that was chosen for these people. Um, and I agree earlier because I've been listening for a while with the firefighter, and I think another person that said this person definitely sounds like a white person, and especially reading this last portion um, as this person doing the voice of Mr. Flint, she seemed she seemed very excitable, like she got a little bit more into it than I think she should have. But that's just me. Thank you. Dr. Flint's character spoke to her, perhaps. Uh, Princess, if you have... Con- oh, well, I'll remind you later. I'll make sure I get that in. Uh, Princess, thank you for your patience. Uh, proceed. Uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, comment and say, um, again, I don't, I guess it's uh, up in the air whether or not this is uh, based, the book is based on a true story or not, but from what I take from it, uh, I do remember it, uh, uh, reading it in school, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think what uh, continues to uh stand out for me at least um, in reference to nowadays, you still have white males that go around and I guess in a more or less uh, predator versus prey type way and stalking um, and hounding black females that they may seem interested in. I've seen instances of this uh, a few times, uh, as well as people confided in me, uh, playing out in the workplace. Uh, you know, just the different acts of uh, um, aggressive stalking and and stuff like that. So uh, that has always stuck out. Uh, apparently, even back then, uh, they made distinctions between, um, I guess, what would be, a, you know, a Negro versus a nigger in the field. So I, I don't see any change in that. And um, uh, I think that's it for now from what I've, I've gathered thus far. Hello. Much, much obliged for your commentary, Princess. Uh, if any other folks have questions, comments, suggestions, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. <clears throat> May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. So I have some comments. Um, I'm definitely really confused about, um, I didn't hear like the first, I think, four chapters, but I'm really confused about the, I guess, the sentiment in the book where um, the grandmother and the great aunt, um, they are invoking fear in slave masters' hearts or what have you, but if I'm not mistaken, aren't there slaves too, or, you know, being subjected to the system of white supremacy too. So 
Um, maybe that's another reason why this book is like widely um, uh, read or what have you, or, or why people like the book because it's kind of putting forth a false narrative that, you know, it's, I guess it's not, um, you know, the, the slave owners, which I'm surprised the term planter is, hasn't been used because I see that a lot and it's, I don't know, it's something that definitely um, frustrates me, I guess, to say the least. I hate the term planter um, when these people own slaves um, or owned other people, rather. So there's that. Um, it seems like it's been mentioned a couple of times within this past couple of chapters. Um, there was also, um, I can't find the where it was. Oh, um, I just, I'm, I'm surprised that, that white women, I guess, would be included in the white people who like the book because, you know, I think that this does actually, some points in the book where um, you have, white woman's quoting like you know um about how they know their husbands have uh, raped black females and produced children you know he's the father of the little niggers but he's not ashamed of it ashamed to call himself their master stuff like that i'm surprised you know that would seem to me at least um somewhat of proof if this is supposed to be a nonfiction. Um, of, you know, white women's contributing to to slavery or to the system of white supremacy, which they like to deny so much. Um, I guess I'll leave it there for now because I can't find the other um, notations. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Nevada. If other folks have commentary, feel free. We should have ample time if you <clears throat> find your additional note notes or if you have questions or whatever it is. Uh, let's see. And there are a lot of different. I did find it. Oh, see, there it is. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. Just one other thing. I did find it. I thought um, of Delectable Negro when it said, um, I will have you pickled. I'll have you peeled and pickled, my lady, referring to um uh, the mistress, when Linda was, uh, when she had said that to Linda about um, wanting to get married to this intelligent, uh, free black male. Thank you. I'll mute my line. Always <clears throat> available to make time for another reference to the delectable Negro Vincent Woodard. Top 10, second time mentioned uh, on the broadcast today. Uh, if other folks have commentary, just make sure you get a hand up before we get close to the end. We should have like 15 minutes before the conclusion of the broadcast. Uh, let's see from, from chapter five, she says, sometimes he assumed a gentleness that he thought must surely subdue. I mean, she talked about other times he was a tyrant just like any other abuser, they can be tyrants and then they can come around and be nice. It can be all flowers and candy. Racists do the same thing. And I appreciate that she seems to have a better understanding of that in this chapter where she didn't before, uh, where it seemed like every slave owning, Negro owning white person was somehow kindly because they gave out a biscuit or whatever. Uh, I also think this book was clearly written for white people. I mean, they're saying that up front. This is written for 
uh, Northern white people and maybe you'll do something about slavery. Now, maybe at that time period, that can be about the only hope that you can think. You know, there's nothing else that we can do but rely on the better angels of some of these white people to hope that they are not all in cahoots together. Maybe you could say that for the time period, as I said, unfortunately, many victims of racism all around the world still have that same logic that we can rely on uh, moral suasion for the whites that are not racist or maybe less racist, whatever that means, to get them to stop all of this. Uh, and a lot of times it just means that we end up falling prey for the whites who are being a little nicer, a little less overtly racist. Uh, next, she says, uh, I was talking about Dr. Uh, Flint. I was compelled to live under the same roof with him where I saw a man 40 years my senior daily violating the most sacred commandments of nature. I think that's what uh, reti retired firefighter and others mean about this being kind of tongue in cheek where they're not uh, just are we talking about rape? Is that what all this means? A man 40 years older than you raping children, which is standard uh, and it's it's standard in, in many ways. It's standard in terms of child rape and pedophilia. That's why you have all this talk about the Catholic Church right now. Uh, that's why Jerry Sandusky. Uh, that's why Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. That's just, you know, white culture, particularly raping black children, Jeffrey Dahmer even. It's, it's applicable in multiple ways also in that this doesn't say child rape. You get this sentence that says, <clears throat> where I saw a man 40 years my senior daily, daily violating the most sacred commandments of nature, not he was raping nigger children. A 40-year-old, 50-year-old man is raping nigger children. That's totally different. And they do that same thing uh, today and not being explicit with the way. That's why we end up getting encouraged to use terms like microaggressions and white privilege and all this nonsense marginalization when we're talking about terrorism. Uh, the next, uh, and this is all on the same page, uh, the mistress who ought to protect the helpless victim has no other feeling toward towards her but those of jealousy and rage again and i hear this now 2019 as though white women are supposed to ally with or sympathize with black people or at least black females in the me too movement i hear this even <laughs> perish the thought uh all on the same page surely if you credited one half half the truths that you are told you concerning the helpless millions suffering in this cruel bondage you at the north would not help to tighten the yoke you surely would refuse to do for the master on your own soil the mean and cruel work which trained bloodhounds and the lowest class of whites do for him at the south again i do not understand uh the i guess that's all that's the only way that i have to just continue to remind myself maybe if i was a victim of racism 200 years ago Maybe I, that's, you know, the only thing I could have done, too, is just hope that maybe there are some white people a little further north. Maybe some of the whites in New York or Pennsylvania someplace, maybe they will help us out and, and do something because this is horrible, I guess. But they the whites, wherever they happen to be, are participating. This is the globalization of the nigger trade back then. Whites everywhere are participating and involved in this some way, shape or form. Again, Edward Baptist, he broke that down with meticulous detail also in the book club. Uh, let's see. Uh, 
The other slaves in my master's house noticed the change in my demeanor. Many of them pitied me, but none dared to ask the cause. They had no need to inquire. They knew too well the guilty practices under that roof, and they were aware that to speak of them was an offense that never went unpunished. Uh, just reminded me... Uh, Pieces of a puzzle, Renithia Tate, she's been a guest on the program uh, many times uh, where she talks about this is something that does not get talked about when people want to talk about relationships in Area 8. They do not want to talk about uh, raping white men and the damage that they wreak against black males and black females. Uh, let's see. The portion here, this really stood out. Now, you want to talk about fictional? The paragraph that reads, but though I did not confide in my grandmother and even evaded her vigilant watchfulness and inquiry, her presence in the neighborhood was some protection to me. Though she had been a slave, Dr. Flint was afraid of her. Now, you could pause right there. 1861, 1831-1819-2019. Do we think a white man would be afraid of a nigra? It's a rhetorical question. Continuing. Uh, so, he's afraid. Uh, he dreaded her scorching. So, this is Dr. Flint. He dreaded her scorching rebukes. Moreover, she was known and patronized by many people, and he did not wish to have his villainy made public that one was a bit of a strain. Same thing I said before. Now the public charade, I'm sleeping with niggers. Everybody's doing this. Thomas Jefferson's doing this. Everyone's involved in this. Why would I have some, you know, tremendous shame, particularly a nigger woman is going to shame me about raping niggers. That's what we do. That, I don't know. That was a bit of a, a strain in terms of believability, especially a white man. I'm, I'm afraid of being rebuked by this nigger woman. I mean, you could just lash her and shut the hell up. I mean, Stuff her mouth full of cornmeal. That's what they said before, right? We just read that earlier in the book. You fed the food to the dog. It wasn't good. I'll choke it down your throat. I don't have to listen to you if I don't want to hear. We lash people here. What do you mean I'm going to be running around afraid because this nigga woman is going to rebuke me or give me some lecture? Uh, this was deemed it prudent to keep up some outward show of decency. That was another one. I mean, we're lashing niggers. Uh, she said 100 consecutive lashes. That's what she wrote. How is there a show of decency when we are auctioning negras? We're raping negras, lashing negras. All of this is happening out in broad daylight. What do you mean show of? I don't even know what that means. Uh, the word fair was used in a bunch of odd ways in this paragraph. That'll be my last comment. And then if other people want to respond or if I've been saying anything incorrect or if you had an additional comment that you forgot, feel free. But she says, I once saw two beautiful children playing together. One was a fair white child. Now, I said, I don't know if that's just redundant. We really want to emphasize that this was a spotless, unblemished albino child. We couldn't just say very white. We had to say fair white child. I don't know. Maybe they meant. Now, if you look up fair, that was the other thing. If you look up uh, the term fair, the first definition is not white. The first definition is in accordance with the rules or standards. Legitimate. That is the first definition. So are we saying that this was one legitimate, just white child? The other was the, her slave and also her sister. 
The raping continues. When I saw them embracing each other and heard their joyous laughter, I turned sadly away from the lovely sight. I foresaw the inevitable blight that would fall on the little slave's heart. I knew how soon her laughter would be changed to size. The fair child grew up to be still fairer woman. And I will stop there again. I don't know. I don't even have a guess as to what we mean or what is meant in this paragraph here with the word fair. It might mean white. It might mean something else entirely. I don't even have a guess. Uh, other folks, if you have commentary, if you want to take a gander as to what is meant by the word fair in this paragraph, that would fair or fairer. Uh, that would be grand. Or if you have other comments, questions, proceed. We have about five minutes left in the broadcast. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I heard I heard the word jealousy uh, quite a bit uh, been attached to uh, white females as a as a uh, reaction. Uh, but I didn't I didn't hear any in detail on how, on what type of actions uh, as a result of being jealous of a black female or black females in general uh, that is in this book. I haven't heard that yet as far as a reaction, physical reaction, like uh, kill the person. Uh, something like that. Uh, am I correct in saying so? I haven't heard in, in terms of these white women are jealous, so they killed one of the slaves or beat. I think she commented that the, they, she was not allowed to be physically punished because that might leave a mark. So, yeah, but I haven't, it's, at least so far, I haven't heard of they were jealous and so they did this other than being angry and letting it be known that they didn't like this particular black female slave. And I, I, I mean, I don't think white white women are any different now than what they were back 158 years ago, and so I'm pretty sure it was a lot of quote unquote uh, uh, willing, violent white women, <laughs> and the and the the pistol was invented at that time. <laughs> so. Regardless of, of, I understand the whole idea of a uh, non-white person being property uh, of some sort of uh, monetary value, uh, but uh, people do break things. <laughs> white people in, in this this particular uh, instance, uh, in their anger, uh, it, which is you know another word for jealousy, uh, would uh, have some sort of violent reaction. <laughs> and uh, I don't even beyond this book I don't think that's detailed enough to include white women in that process uh, I don't think that's detailed enough in a book and 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 going back to the questions you mentioned about why is this book is so acceptable to white people and this that's probably this, I'm probably describing another example because I have not indicted white women to the level that they should be indicted in contrast to all of these seemingly white women who seemingly are allied with black females uh, over the idea of this singer reportedly has been mistreating black females. Uh, 
I would say that that is a uh, lie as far as white females are not sincere about that at all. That's all I'd say. Thank you. Mm. Can I be heard? Princess. I just wanted to say real quick, I think overall, the uh, for me, um, I guess white people gravitate to this book a lot, uh, I guess, because it offers them a form of escape and brings, uh, I guess, some feelings of nostalgia, you know, just to reminisce about <laughs> the past. And I mean, that's similar to how this whole slave play thing is being played out in uh, Broadway again. It's, um, it is just a, a, a rehash of the past, and it just seems like, uh, I don't know, we, we get caught up in the confusion somehow. We, we just can't, we're unable to, to see it. <laughs> but, yeah. Make America great again, the good old days. This is uh, what we want to get back to. You could go out and rape niggers whenever you feel like it. Didn't have to take any lip from a nigger. Sell them to New Orleans. Next five seconds. We're not going to New Orleans to watch football games. We're going to buy niggers. That was in Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. He talked about that New Orleans was the capital of buying niggers. You're trying to go and get your nice light complexion mulatto winch hit new orleans louisiana down right there where irie is any other folks have a comment they wanted to get in before we conclude hello guys yes ma'am yes indeed um what you just said um and the last thing i wanted to say is yes i agree with the previous caller uh slavery um the anti-bellum south is definitely a a fantasy genre for um, white people, especially white women. Scarlett, what's her name? O'Hare? Whatever. Yeah. Gone with the wind. Absolutely. Plantation fiction. An entire genre. Plantation fiction. Lots of those, although this is not fiction, but the whole plantation literature, there we go, that captures the fiction and nonfiction. The plantation literature genre is extremely popular. Film, book, uh, I'd put the help in there too, even though that's not, you know, on the plantation per se, uh, but it's the same thing. Extremely popular, whites love that sort of thing. And this has so many references to kindly and good whites and that sort of thing, I could, I could see why whites might enjoy a book like this. Not indicting all people as, not indicting all whites as racist. That's a big one. We'll see how it proceeds. Uh, if you have questions or thoughts, comments as we roll along, uh, if you have a different edition and it has a, you know, because my introduction is different. Mine is written by Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, so it has different info than like the one that uh, Irie has. So, you know, check your intro, see if it has any interesting uh, tidbits that you would like to share. As we roll along, we'll be on this book for a few weeks and we just got started. We'll be here tomorrow for Workplace Racism. What I meant to mention, our caller that dialed in before, so we read The Hate You Give on the book club. Uh, one of our callers, she's with us now. She recommended uh, it was Anna Ann Michelson, white woman in Norway. She teaches The Hate You Give. She'll be on the program 
this coming Tuesday. Looking forward to it. Uh, man, it really, any white person who jumps up and down and says that they think that uh, the hate you give is great and wonderful and should be taught in schools and that they're so happy that there's a film adaptation, I would have lots of questions for them. We'll be looking forward to that on yes, Tuesday. I'm excited. Me I, too. I have, she's from America. I've done read one. She's from America. She moved to Norway when she was six. And now this year she teaches my 13, the thing by Ava DuVernay. Oh, yeah. She she teaches a lot of stuff. Nothing new, nothing about Norway, I see. But everything about everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Two o'clock. Two o'clock Eastern. Uh, 11, it's irregular time. I mean, you know, it's a nine hour time difference between here and Norway. So uh, it's 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific uh, on Tuesday, I guess morning or afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. But if you read The Hate You Give, you should hang out or you can, I guess you could listen to the archives. But if you can, try to tune in live, get a question. It's always nice to ask White's questions, particularly get a white person who is in a different part of the world. And on this book, if you saw the film or the movie or whatever it is, man, formerly the worst book I ever read. Uh, all of the folks who labored through that abomination, we should take advantage and look forward to asking a white person questions. So that is Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, I'll post her blog page where she writes about this book so you all can be prepared and do our research. Uh, in the meantime, compensatory call-in on Saturday, workplace racism tomorrow, and the Global Sunday Talk on Racism uh, is Sunday. So we will be rolling 2019. Uh, all of that in the background, still preparing and trying to get the details. I'm doing that later today, getting the details together for the yoga retreat 2019, end of February should be Tennessee, Jackson, specific, Jackson, Jackson, Tennessee. But more details on that to come. Uh, that said, much obliged for everyone participating. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Uh, we'll be back for part two next Thursday. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Let's do all that we can <clears throat> to keep our brain computers working in optimal condition. Uh, so that we can crank out solutions to the problem, whites. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver, or passenger. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.